Good afternoon. I'll call this work session to order. This is Christian Dorsey, Chair of the Board Presiding, and joining me are all of my colleagues, including Vice Chair Garvey, Board Members Crystal DeFerranti, and Karen Tonis. Today, we are going to have our final departmental budget work session of the FY24 budget cycle. And today, we have a variety of department representatives who will uh, speak on the PAYGO proposals and funding for capital projects, as well as funding for transportation projects, the Crystal City Tax Increment Financing, Debt Service, as well as Metro Funding Programs. There will be opportunities for discussion, but we do have a lot of slides to get through. As a reminder, today's presentations and more information on the proposed budget are available on the Budget and Finance page at the county's website, arlingtonva.us. With that, I'll turn it over to our manager, Mr. Schwartz, to get us started. Thank you, Mr. Dorsey. As you noted, we have a number of people here, but we are Lucky to be started off by our capital budget coordinator, Karen Talley. Over to you, Karen. Thank you, Mr. Schwartz. Um, members of the board, Chair Dorsey. Again, my name is Karen Talley. I'll be presenting to you the summary of the fiscal year 2024 capital program budget. So the FY24 capital program budget covers a large portfolio of infrastructure investments. From our roads to our parks, technology and government facilities, the FY 2024 capital spending totals over $320 million. <clears throat> These investments are made from a variety of revenue sources and often span multiple years. As you will see detailed in later slides, these dollars have several different fund sources, many of which are legally restricted to the capital program. Of this amount, over $87 million are from federal and state grants, over $155 million from GEO bonds, almost $43 million in dedicated transportation funds, $12 million in bond premium dollars, and over $12 million in short-term finance. Those four sources make up over 90% of the fiscal year 24 capital fund portfolio. Of the remaining balance, PAYGO is 8%. As we continue through this presentation, we'll note that how the constrained ongoing PAYGO funds have been balanced with one-time PAYGO dollars to invest in a prioritized capital program that focuses on maintaining our current infrastructure. We will also highlight key considerations for the program moving forward. Next slide. Last summer, we adopted our first 10-year CIP since fiscal year 2019. As the county manager mentioned in his budget proposal presentation, we were able to fund the majority of PAYGO-funded projects included in the adopted CIP. Some of the project cost estimates have increased since the CIP due to inflation and supply chain issues. We'll hear more about that from the departments during their presentations. The FY24 proposed PAYGO budget focuses on our long-stated goal of maintaining what we have and also includes smaller investment dollars for our new projects. The capital budget is a snapshot of an ongoing capital program that has previous capital projects that are already underway, along with the proposed projects that will be presented to you today. Examples of some of the projects underway include the construction of the 1212 South Irving Street Group Home, Boundary Channel Drive interchange improvements, the West Glebe Road bridge renovation, and the Cardinal School Detention Vault. 
There are new projects included in this proposed capital budget that work towards meeting some of the county's operating program goals. Examples of some of those projects include the Crystal City Library, electric vehicle charges, and the cloud migration project. You'll hear more about those projects during the department presentations. Throughout this presentation, we'll be presenting a comprehensive look at all capital funding sources, but because this is the annual operating budget, we'll focus on pay-as-you-go and short-term finance projects. Next slide, please. This slide illustrates the various funding sources that feed into the capital program. Capital funding has certain sources that are dedicated and restricted to specific capital activities. I'll begin with PAYGO funding. Our pay-as-you-go capital program is funded with a mix of both ongoing and one-time funding. It's important to have that mix because it allows us the necessary flexibility to maintain what we have as well as address unanticipated projects that are identified outside of the CIP process. This year's PAYGO budget is funded at $26 million and is funded from local taxes, reallocated balances, as well as legally restricted bond premium funds. Other sources under the dedicated and restricted category are the transportation and metro funds. The Crystal City TIF, Transportation Capital Fund, and our state, federal, and regional grant funds are all restricted in use and dedicated for transportation and or metro activities. These three sources together represent 40% of the overall capital funding program. The final two funding sources are short-term finance and general obligation bonds. Short-term finance is 4% of the overall annual capital program budget and typically, typically funds our core technology assets. Geo bonds in this budget represent previously approved bonds. The larger geo bond discussion about new bonds is had during the CIP formulation. Next slide, please. As mentioned in the previous slide, PACO is proposed to be funded at $26 million from a variety of funding sources, including a mix of ongoing and one-time funds. It funds the replacement of assets with a useful life of 10 years or less, mostly projects that are not appropriate for long-term financing. In keeping with our sound financial policies, it's important to maintain PAYGO as a flexible cash source. The bond rating agency positively view having a mix of cash and finance dollars. Next slide. PAYGO has traditionally been used to fund the routine maintenance of our capital assets. It serves to reduce the failure of our infrastructure by investing with the goal of maintaining our large portfolio of assets in a state of good repair. As in the most recent previous years, PAYGO dollar investments have continued to be concentrated on must-have projects and end-of-life replacement cycles. In addition, we focused funding on extending the useful life of assets while also replacing assets that have a possible risk of near-term failure. In this proposed budget, there is also a focused investment in public safety assets, such as our fire stations, fire equipment, and the court's police building. The operating and capital budgets have both had to adjust to the evolving needs of our board and community over the past several years. 
Some of the new areas of focus for the capital program include technology, energy management, park spaces, and natural resource management. Next slide, please. This slide illustrates the various funding sources for PAYGO across the past five years. As you can see, ongoing funding across the last two years has had a modest increase. However, it has not yet reached pre-COVID levels, especially given the increased cost from inflation. As expected, the majority of PAYGO funding continues to be from one-time dollars. However, it's important to keep in mind that increased ongoing PAYGO dollars are required to provide programs a stable funding source. This will allow departments to develop a sustainable and predictable maintenance capital investment program. Next slide. General obligation bonds are long-term financing for both county and schools capital infrastructure projects. They fund county projects such as Gateway Park, facility improvements at the Courts Police Building, capital maintenance projects such as roof replacements and park improvements, the repaving of our roads, and bridge maintenance. Every two years as part of the CIP process, the board approves a referenda that includes two years of geo bond funding. That referenda must then be approved by voters in November. The $155.8 million included here includes funds from the previous referenda that had balances to be spent as well as issued unspent balances left. As I talked about earlier, the capital program implements projects across several years. And this demonstrates a good example of that with the issuance of geo bonds across several years as the projects are executed. Bond dollars are used to finance projects with an average useful life of 10 years or more and adhere to approved financial policies. Next slide. Short-term debt financing is the financing of assets with a useful life of three to 10 years. Because of the shorter useful life of the projects, the interest rates are typically lower than rates for long-term bonds. This finance tool allows us to spread payments over a term rather than paying all at once. This, of course, helps with the affordability of all of the equipment that is purchased with this source. As with geo bonds, debt service for short-term financing is funded in the general fund and the operating budget. This source has historically been used to finance equipment for enterprise technology and public safety. However, other types of assets like fitness equipment and synthetic turf fields with useful lives of greater than three years are also financed through short-term financing. Next slide. Project costs are continuing to increase. As stated earlier, Project costs as adopted in the CIP have increased as part of the FY24 proposed budget. Supply chain issues are a main driver, along with increased demand for materials and labor shortages. The increased cost of bulk materials and larger equipment are also major contributors to capital project prices increases, as well as an increase in execution time for projects. And finally, the lead time necessary to receive materials for any given project is another added factor in cost growth. And that finishes my presentation. If you have questions, I'm available, or we can have questions at the end with the departments. Thank you. Um, any questions for Ms. Talley? As always, you give a wonderful overview of the entire capital program, and 
We appreciate it, as do I'm sure people who are watching, colleagues, any questions? Seeing none, but that just means you did a great job at explaining Thank it. Thank you. Okay, uh, next up, I'm going to ask if our friends from the Department of Everything Under the Sun. Thank you. Uh, can come here, George. Thank you, Mr. Schwartz, Chair Darcy, and board members. I'm George May for DES Facilities and Engineering, and our PAYGO request that we'll present today includes funding for both our facilities team and the energy management air team. And they're coupled together as the energy management outcomes and their analytics directly support our facility electrification work. Next slide. Okay. Our key priorities in fiscal 24, as Karen mentioned, uh, continuing our core mission, facilities delivery and maintaining our state of good repair. In addition, we're working to improve energy efficiency and reduce greenhouse gas emissions with the joint initiatives that uh, the energy team and facilities management will present to you. Also, further expanding our electric vehicle charging capacity for both the county fleet and public use, and identifying opportunities to reduce our office space with a new normal mix of virtual and in-person work. Our equity principles are shown on this slide. Thank you. And our application of these principles is best illustrated by the distribution countywide of our planned fiscal 24 projects. Uh, next. The inventory that we maintain in our facilities includes 89 county-owned buildings, four lease spaces, just under 3 million square feet. One notable change from the past year, we've reduced the number of vacant facilities from five to two with the demolition of the old Virginia Hospital building at Carlin Springs and starting funded programs to move the fire logistics operation from Old Fire Station 5 to the building Quincy 1 and the fire services operations in the Hudson building adjacent to Fire Station 4 to the 2020 building. Our unused space has shrunk from 275,000 square feet reported to you this time last year to just 7,500 square feet. Next. Our plan budget for fiscal 24 combines our PAYGO requests and our previously approved funding and totals $30 million across our three areas. Our proposed work will be presented for these three areas that you see, starting with how energy management's analytics informs our facility management of feasible facility electrification opportunities, while F&B simultaneously maintains our operating inventory. Facilities design and construction activities build on the three fiscal 24 initiatives in this funding request and continuing our previously approved projects. Stephen Burr will speak first to our energy management plans. Stephen. 
Thanks, George. In FY23, the AIR team led in coordination with FMB to design and develop the decarbonization tool, or decarb tool, as a decision support planning process tool for the county to model energy efficiency and electrification opportunities in existing county facilities. The tool was scoped to provide analysis of 12 representative facilities with upcoming CIP projects with energy models, develop energy upgrade scenarios with priority measures, and analyze feasibility considerations for measure um, scenarios. An image of the DCARB tool with key areas of analysis is in the accompanying spread um, screenshot. Projects currently underway include phase two of the DCARB tool with enhanced and more granular analyses for two specific sites, Madison Community Center and Quincy Three. This will focus on feasibility considerations for more complex equipment and systems to guide the design and engineering phases. In the graphic are selected key metrics from the DCARB tool that include greenhouse gas impacts, payback periods, and energy cost and impacts. An example of these metrics for, um, for a specific facility, Quincy 3 HVAC upgrades, are modeling a 27% annual GHG savings, 16-year payback period, and a 30% increase in electricity for the use of an air source heat pump. We are, also we are also currently in various phases of planning and design for public access EV charging stations at Courthouse Plaza and Central Library. More details on these efforts will be provided later in the presentation. The AIR team and DES leadership are evaluating implementation sites and models for publicly accessible EV charger locations countywide with a focus on end-user data, equity, and long-term maintenance. The slide has the FY24 budget summary table with a total of $1.515 million, which includes facilities funding for government fleet EV charging. This supports near-term strategies under the Community Energy Plan roadmap for both public-facing and government measures and benchmarks. The first project in this table for funded projects is, electri is, electrical, is electric vehicle chargers for internal accessibility and fleet charging installations. This continues the work with FMB and Equipment Bureau to support fleet transformation to electric vehicles. Complementing the government fleet charging infrastructure is funding for publicly accessible and public use EV charging networks on government sites. These sites have been informed and identified by location, circulation, and projected use profiles. We are currently preparing for installation at Courthouse Plaza, a surface lot, and Central Library. Analysis and planning are currently underway for up to four community centers, including Fairlington and Barcroft. The last budget line supports energy performance upgrades in county buildings identified through the DCARB tool at Madison Community Center and Quincy Three. These upgrades are anticipated to include electrification of HVAC systems and the associated incremental cost um, increases over like-for-like -like equipment replacements, building envelope upgrades, lighting retrofits, and building automation systems connections. Adam will be speaking next for the facilities section of this presentation. Good afternoon. I'm Adam Kalawi, Facilities Management Bureau. Thank you, Mr. Schwartz, board members. So you'll see FMB has an active project portfolio of 49 projects valued at $67 million. Starting with some of our accomplishments, we continue to support various programs, including DES for water sewer streets, uh, DHS, parks, 
as well as Arlington Public Schools, specifically highlighting our help in advancing the electrification of the bus fleet through the installation of four level three charging stations at the, at the Trade Center. Next slide, please. Uh, many of our projects currently underway with some pending completion this month include the long-awaited renovation of the Bosman Government Center and Courthouse Library. We continue to address critical infrastructure with the Rotilla replacement at the detention facility. We've also continued to work with our energy management team on a few projects including implementing their decarb tool results by performing an LED lighting retrofit at the Equipment Bureau, supporting county fleet EV conversion by deploying charging stations with 28 currently installed and 17 more planned in FY23. We are also supporting publicly accessible EV charging stations with the installation at the Courthouse Plaza surface lot, as well as the survey and design that was mentioned for Central Library. We are also working on the application of the CEP roadmap goals with the pilot electrification at the Cultural Affairs Facility. Next slide, please. So this initiative will reduce greenhouse gas emissions by converting an existing gas boiler to all electric. We've completed a feasibility study and reviewed the options. We've decided to move forward with an electric resistance type uh, boiler because it will maintain existing operational standards and minimize facility modifications. However, the project has various impacts, including a cost premium between $500,000 and $750,000. It will also increase electricity usage by 100, 135%. It will also reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 700 metric tons over the life cycle of the equipment. Our next steps include completion of the design, followed by utility upgrades and construction in FY24. Next slide, please. Uh, this is a summary of FMB's proposed FY24 budget, which includes geo bond funding for various projects, including the cultural affairs conversion, HVAC improvements uh, to Quincy site and Madison Community Center. We continue to emphasize preventative maintenance to maintain a state of good repair and 24-7 operation of critical facilities, while also using corrective maintenance data when planning for future projects. We will also provide support to county sustainability goals through the installation of EV charging stations for county and public. Uh, next slide, please. FMB's FY24 request is $3.1 million. Some of the projects highlighted include $750,000 to address the water intrusion into the Arlington Mill Community Center gym from the upper plaza through resloping of the walkway and a new drainage system, as well as $300,000 to repair the retaining wall and some minor roof repairs at the Lubber Run Amphitheater. We're also maintaining our life safety systems with various fire alarm uh, system replacements as needed. And that's a, a brief summary of the budget request for FMB. And I'll turn it over to Brad Baer for FDNC. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chairman, Board Members, Mr. Schwartz. I'm Brad Baer with Facilities Design and Construction, and we currently have a portfolio of 28 projects valued with a budget of $200 million. And the next two slides provide a snapshot of what we've been working on. Highlighted accomplishments on this slide show development at the Quincy and Carlin Springs sites uh, in support for fire department, transit, and stormwater management programs, um, along with the implementation of interior design features that promote flexible and shared spaces and also provide the opportunity for consolidation given increased telework. Next slide, please. We have several projects currently in construction that will be coming online between this spring and the end of 2024. 
and this slide showcases those in support of DHS, the detention facility, fire department, and the art operations maintenance facility, uh, while also including uh, sustainable features on several of them, including uh, solar panels, electrical vehicle charging, and green roofs in support of our energy goals. Next slide. This is a summary of FDNC's FY24 proposed budget uh, and includes go, bonding, go bond funding in support of CIP initiatives uh, such as courthouse complex renovations, fire station replacements, and the Situational Awareness Center. Um, and then our FY24 PAYGO and bonds are broken out by project on the next slide. Uh, and they'll continue to prioritize the use of limited funds on public amenities and providing safer environments in our more heavily used facilities. Next slide. FDNC's FY24 request is for about $1.5 million and includes three items, uh, starting with an additional million dollars for the new library in Crystal City um, as a part of the Crystal Plaza site development plan. Uh, we recently completed the concept design, uh, as you could see in the graphic. $1.2 million was previously approved, and this uh, increased budget ask is due to, um, it's driven by evolving market conditions and least specific issues as we strive to provide a program that meets the minimum library requirements. The next item is $300,000 for facilities, finishes, and furnishings. Uh, this is specifically to address uh, quality and safety issues due to age, wear, and tear uh, in the central library, while we defer non-essential interiors work um, due to budget limitations. We recently provided furnishings in the public areas of the Central Library, and this funding will be used to complete the effort in the staff areas. And then our last request is $150,000 to complete the ongoing ADA remediation priorities. Uh, this is in the first and second floors of the detention facility in areas that are accessible to the public and staff. This will wind down our ADA remediation efforts, and then any other uh, ADA deficiencies will be addressed as we uh, you know, through projects as we go through construction in our facilities. And that concludes the budget request for FDNC. Thank you so much. Okay. So Mr. May, before you leave, I think this might be a good time to get a series of questions if there are any from... Oh, you have one more. Sorry. I had a wrap up for you. has the ultimate slide. There we go. Sorry about that. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay, all right. Okay, well, as you heard Karen say, and what'll be a theme for the presentations we had, when we get beyond fiscal 24, we recognize we're still going to have some issues. And there are going to be the budget constraints and how we identify non-essential facility, facility deferrals. <clears throat> and as Karen mentioned, we particularly are slammed by the market conditions for our suppliers. Not only pricing inflation, but lead times, and what we're also experiencing, a number of the contractors we work with who do the hands-on work are having staffing shortages as well. Um, but as Stephen Burr mentioned, we'll be using our energy management analytics so we can address how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the trade-off for additional electricity consumption, and in some cases, um, premium costs for equipment. 
Uh, you heard an overview of our CIP-funded renovations, which we'll be continuing. And our challenge as we do this, for instance, moving fire support services from one building to another is making sure we align the space requirements with the current work style. And finally, we'll, in that theme, we're continuing to look at other opportunities of reducing office space when we go to our more virtual hybrid workforce. So now that does conclude our presentation, Mr. Dorsey. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mr. May. And colleagues, a lot to chew on. Appreciate all of the uh, presentations. Who would like to start us off? I will. So as we think about the um, decarbonization tool, can you give us a sense uh, as to whether or not that has any broader utility to uh, non-county facilities, whether that's something that we could adapt or, or make useful for others to kind of bring them along to where we are? Yes, certainly. So I think the first bite of the apple was looking at the um, existing facilities at the county and we we're looking to replicate that model in various ways to take this approach, this analytical um, forward approach and, and have it uh, replicable in other countywide, community-wide applications. So yeah, so we are looking to, to um, what opportunities there are to either upscale what we currently have or create other suites of tools for, um, for tackling uh, decarbonization. It's terrific, and not that I'm going to hold you to it by any means, but could you give me a sense of what might be a, a conceptual time frame where something like that could be, could be realized? Uh, I would say probably over the next few um, few years, we're really looking at something um, for um, something more wider scale, but um, but looking to fuse together a lot of you know the tool that we have, all the federal funding and federal grant opportunities, and and, and a lot of different pieces there. But we're really hoping to um, really um, turn the strategy into action um, um, since it is uh, a core part of our CEP roadmap. Thank you, Mr. Burr. Appreciate it. Awesome. All right. Lots of, lots of questions on this one. All right. Well, Ms. I was, yeah, was going to ask, while we're on the decarbonization tool, thank you so much for the presentation. I wondered, um, I, the, the sample project was really helpful, and I wondered to what extent um, can we expect to see more output of the tool uh, as you all make decisions, um, and then also can you give us some insight into to how exactly you're using the tool to make decisions? Is it about um, sort of determining the right power source for a given renovation? Is it about prioritizing which projects that you know, may have the greatest ROI um, for investing? Is it about the timeline for when there may be conversions, et cetera? So both um, when can we expect to see it and, and more about how, uh, how you're using it? Thank you. Yes, um, so right now we, we started it as an internal decision support tool as we work with, with project planning and looking at what um, uh, scenarios that we can look at for, for building upgrades and, and also layer in items like um, what technologies are currently available, what other feasibility cons um, con considerations are there if there are um, that we need to address and, and look at. So um, right now the, uh, the tool was scoped to be sort of an internal piece, but I, th I think definitely the communications piece is something that we can look at in, in, in augmenting the, the tool as, as we impl implement it. And one thing just to add to that, obviously I do work with uh, Stephen on the, uh, through, with the tool and looking at our different facilities, and we try to ensure we can account for uh, like you mentioned, the power source, knowing what the, the facility is currently able to handle, as well as from the maintenance side, making sure that whatever we're going to install is actually maintainable. We don't want to put something in that we can't actually work on and we lose its usefulness too soon. 
So you would use it when there is a project, a, a facility that needs a renovation and you're trying to determine what to do rather than saying um, which of these facilities might we tackle for renovation first? Both, correct, yes. So we, so for FY24, we had a couple of projects already on the list that using the tool we're able to identify which measures are best to implement for that specific project. So we are going to adjust the scope to align with uh, the DCARB tool results where feasible. Uh, as well as there are some other projects that we're able to uh, jumpstart their uh, conversion if we need to, if we know they're near uh, use, end of useful life rather than waiting till end of useful life or till it becomes critical. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Garvey, next. Yeah, thank you. I think on the same one, I think, I mean, we're all fascinated by it. The boiler electrification seems really interesting. Um, and, I, and I'm glad we're going to be doing pilots. When I was on the school board ages ago, we did uh, geothermal, and it, we weren't really ready for it, and it caused a lot of problems. That was a long, long time ago. So it's, it's good to do a pilot. And I find myself funny. I'm assuming we're not the only uh, jurisdiction doing these sort of things. So I assume we're coordinating with our friends in Alexandria and Fairfax. I mean, is everybody kind of doing this sort of thing in the region, or are we doing more of it? Um, from, from what I've seen is that this is definitely an area that, um, that all local governments in the area are looking at is decarbonization of facilities. I think that existing facilities, given that the facility is already there and, and with equipment up, upgrades, um, this is a little, um, um, I, I haven't seen a model in the, in the region that, um, that sort of takes this analytical approach that, that we're taking. I've, um, and so, um, I think that we are out of, uh, ahead of the game on this and, and really trying to take the analytical approach for the existing facility. Okay, yeah, that's great. And I, I assume we will do quick, because I think Alexandria's ahead of us on electric buses, and it'd be good if everybody could learn from, from each other, so hope, I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of uh, coordination. Um, and then I think you may have answered it. How, when do you think we'll have results, like particularly on the boiler electrification? I'm just kind of curious about that one. I mean, that's going to be a couple of years. You've got to get it up and running, and then you've got to have some a year of... So the, the project is slated for FY24. We are starting the design this year and will be completed uh, in FY24 and construction should be done by the end of FY24. So we'll know, we'll have the system converted over within the year or so. And then you gotta get, I assume it takes a year to get good results? I mean, how long do you think it takes to then figure out if it's actually working? Yeah, generally it's a year for the, um, for the evaluation, measurement, and verification process. So we'll take mm -hmm. a year of facility data and the consumption and compare that to what our forecast and what our models were, and that'll help us sort of inform the tool and recalibrate so we do have that feedback loop as we, as we continue to implement. Uh, Great. So technology. like in a couple of years, we might actually have some, some yep. data. Cool. All right. Thank you. All right. Mr. Karen Tonis. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, all this is very, very interesting. I have to tell you, to, to Ms. Garvis, uh, at the moment that you were presenting the slide, I was thinking, what happened to solar water heaters? But it's a different, because on 3700, uh, um, for my run, I think there is a, I mean, it's a flat-roofed building, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. So uh, this is one of these where I would always assume that uh, something like that would be feasible. Uh, and they normally go hand-in-hand -hand with, with an electric uh, uh, boiler. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've seen that in practice, how it works. Uh, it it uh, takes down energy consumption by 95%, especially in our uh, latitude here, and it's extremely efficient. Uh, but uh, I'm not an engineer. I'm just putting that out there, just as a, as a note. Uh, the other thing is, uh, the other thing that I wanted to ask, I, I want to understand that the, the, how we 
how we apply, apply the decarbonization uh, prioritization tool. So I understand that we model the building, that's number one, that's, that's a huge insight. Uh, I always thought that we, mostly that we had modeled our buildings already, but we are uh, taking a second bite at this apple. Is that correct? Great. And then we, we, are, and we are running then different scenarios with different solutions. And then we'll be able to, uh, you know, to, to, to assess, uh, you know, what is the best pathway for these buildings to be decarbonized. Is that, do I understand correctly? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a pretty good characterization of it too. Yep, and so we'll and so we look at twelve different measures that we apply to it to see what you know what the costs are, what the savings for each of those buildings, so we can really compare them side side by side and inform the the um, design phase of it, and then also um, pull in some of items like the feasibility constraints. So if there are, um, you know, we do need to look at like the panel upgrade or, or, or other items like that, that we can also bake that into the design processes as well going forward. Great. So, so, yep. is, there, is there a point where we report something or we make this data available to the public to see, to see, for example, how a building, uh, how, and give it this building, for example, it is modeled and you know how this building performs? Yeah, I, I think that there is. Um, so we do, um, uh, the county does um, disclose and benchmark all of its facility um, buildings, and so that's sort of the annualized um, EUI. But I think that we could look at opportunities with the decarbonization tool to have, whether it's a case study or, or specific call-outs that have more um, public-facing information on them. Right, because I, I thought that since we are modeling the building again, uh, that would be excellent to update our benchmarking, right? Yeah, and, and so the benchmarking does occur annually, and we and we uh, disclose that through the EPA's Portfolio Manager Energy Star tool, and so that's um, and so that's available um, for. Um, but yeah, but the energy model would sort of show the more granular, um, specific data with 30-minute um, interval data that we use, rather than the yeah. than the monthly data. Okay. I really think it's important because we have a lot of interest in that. Uh, and we are, at the end, uh, we're applying something that is pretty forward-thinking, and why wouldn't we show it uh, to, to the general public here so that they see what we are doing and, you know, it provides some input as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. DeFerranti. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Let's see if I understand Mr. the conversation you just had. So and with Ms. Garvey and Mr. Carantonis, all of that work on slide 24 it talks about 500,000 to 750,000. Mm. All of that work essentially would determine how much of a premium we end up paying in practice. This is our estimate and Thanks we will lot. find out. Is that correct? Correct, so through our feasibility study that was the premium that was determined it would cost to go from uh, natural gas to all electric. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, thank you. I just wanted to see if I was understanding. The only other question I had is regarding electric vehicles and the four um, uh, community centers. Do we have, and if you don't know off the top, that's reasonable. Um, how, do we have a sense of how many electric charging stations we would put in at each of those locations, or does it vary? I don't know which one of you would be best. So it, it does vary. We, that's part of uh, working with Stephen on that is figuring out which uh, location and then factoring in what's available. So the goal is typically between uh, two to six, depending on the location, parking constraints, as well as, again, electricity constraints. And there's no, like, is there 
amount per charging that it typically costs? Is it fifty thousand? Is it or is it is it less more? Per, uh, per charging station? Yeah. So for a public facing charging station, we typically see around uh, ten to fifteen thousand dollars for the full installation of it. Got it. Okay. I'll be interested in following up a little bit just to see if there's. I'm mindful that, that there's a little money left in the Climate Action Fund, and when we founded that, that was based on outreach to the public. Um, I'm trying to compare in my mind the 300,000 we're spending on the Central Library refresh with the money we have left in our Climate Action Fund, and uh, both be strategic, but also um, respond to the science of the last month and the. The new report. So, thanks very much, Mr. Chair, and both of you. Thank you. Any additional questions, Ms. Crystal? Uh, unrelated to uh, our energy investments, just a quick question: the Crystal City Library. I just wanted to make sure I'm understanding. So, the investment there is an additional, or the proposed investment there is an additional one million for a total of about uh, 2.2 million in in support from uh, the general fund, or maybe bond premium. I'm not sure of the source from Arlington County, right? Because that, that, that uh, facility is a partnership with a developer? Correct, it would be from Arlington County, and this is our funding to outfit the space with the new library. Okay, and so I just wanted to refresh myself because the, the, their contribution is uh, zero rent for that space, is that right? And our, ours is to invest in the actual fitting out of it? They're making a contribution towards, and I don't have, it's about two, I think it's $250,000 a year for a certain number of years that were meant to offset the operating costs okay. um, of the facility. So are we sort of, paying annual rent? Do we know? Uh, um, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. I don't think we are, um, but I, I can't recall. <laughs> you don't have that at the tip of your fingers on every possible project? No, 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 I don't. <laughs> uh, that would be great. I'd, I'd appreciate seeing it. And also, if you could just remind me, too, for um, how long our arrangement is, both their contributions and then the term of the lease. I find that helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Any additional questions for Mr. May and team? All right. Thank you. Paging Eric Beach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here he is. Next up, uh, Eric Beach is going to make a presentation, um, and he will be focusing on the capital program for the Department of Parks and Recreation. So, when you're all settled, I think and Brittany and Jane. Ah. Okay. ah, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'm Eric Beach with the Department of Parks and Recreation. Um, and <clears throat> as Mark just almost noted, uh, today Jane Rudolph, uh, our director, is here, as well as Brittany Canney, our acting uh, financial officer, uh, Tim McIntosh, Packintosh, our park development studio manager, and Robert Capper, our DPR, DPR asset manager, are all here and available uh, if needed. Next slide, please. Uh, <clears throat> the DPR capital program uh, is created and managed in support of DPR's vision, uh, which is to be the happiest, healthiest place to live, learn, work, and play. Uh, the CIP and PAYGO programs directly tie into creating and maintaining uh, attractive public spaces that are called for as part of our mission. Next slide, please. <clears throat> Since DPR last provided an update uh, at our 2022 CIP uh, presentation, we have continued to make progress uh, on our capital maintenance needs. Uh, renovations at Towers and Marcy Road Parks have been completed 
and the restrooms at Madison Manor and Fort Scott Parks have been rebuilt. Next slide, please. <clears throat> As part of our synthetic field program, uh, DPR has completed the conversion from natural grass to synthetic grass uh, at the upper teat field at Thomas Jefferson Middle School, uh, which you can see on the left, and replaced synthetic turf at Barcroft Park, which features our new uh, county logo, uh, pictured on the right. Additionally, synthetic turf was replaced at Rocky Run Park and the Wakefield High School Stadium. Within DPR's trail and bridge modernization program, uh, we replaced 17,000 linear feet of trail in 2022, uh, and are set to replace 12,000 linear feet of trail in 2023. Uh, you can see two examples here of new asphalt at Glen Carlin and Lucky Run Trails. Uh, in 2022, we completed the replacement of a pedestrian bridge in Glen Carlin Park, uh, and have a second pedestrian bridge going out to bid uh, this in the very near future at Lubber Run Park, uh, and have begun design work on replacing a non-ADA compliant bridge in Bluemont Park. Next slide. <clears throat> DPR has a variety of projects in various stages of project completion. Uh, we are currently scoping eight projects, including Douglas Park, Woodmont Park, and the Kenmore Synthetic Field Conversion. We have three important projects in the planning phase, uh, the Boathouse, Roslyn Gateway Park, and the three urban parks in Virginia Square. DPR has Bailey's Branch uh, Park, Gunston Park Playground, and Upper Bluemont Tennis Courts in design, uh, among several others. And currently, we don't have any projects in bidding, uh, sort of more of a quirk of the timing of this presentation than where we are in, in our scheduling. Uh, we do have several projects in permitting and are looking to complete construction of Alcova Heights Park, the Gunston Bubble, and several others. When DPR looks at equity in its capital program, there are several areas of focus for us. As I have shared previously, uh, DPR looks at our geographical distribution. Uh, of our projects, and on the right, you can see how those projects have been implemented uh, across the county since 2015. Uh, in our long-range master planning, we are cognizant of the important questions of who is involved, who are we missing, uh, how do we bring residents into our processes that are not currently participating, uh, and DPR also uses our level of service in the 2019 Public Spaces Master Plan to ensure equitable access to our amenities. Um, I'm going to take a moment uh, to talk more about how DPR uh, is looking to add an equity lens to the selection of our capital projects. Uh, we have been consulting with our peers in other jurisdictions, um, primarily Minneapolis and Portland. Uh, these jurisdictions have equity plans in place uh, and actively use them in their capital programming. Uh, a large amount of our work is already done in that our asset management study over the last few years uh, has given us a good understanding of the condition of our assets and our facilities. Uh, that understanding is based on a formula that has input such as condition of the asset, useful life remaining, and safety concerns. What we're looking at now uh, and what our peer jurisdictions have begun to do is to add an equity uh, into that formula. Uh, and we're going to do that via filters such as income analytics, uh, racial and ethnic makeup of neighborhoods, and other community indicators. Um, the idea is that this new formula will provide a far more equitable decision-making process, uh, and we're pretty excited to see where this will go and to share more in the future uh, as that advances. Next slide, please. Um, as I have uh, talked about in the past uh, several times, uh, we have a long list of assets uh, in our 147 parks and almost 1,000 acres of, of, of land. Uh, includes 81 playgrounds, 100, 180 courts of different varieties, uh, 25 restrooms, miles of fencing, and thousands of small items like picnic tables, grills, and signs and such. Uh, we also have 126 acres of natural resource conservation areas and 250,000 trees to maintain. Next slide, please. How do we manage all of that? Um, as I mentioned on the earlier slide, uh, for our assets, we are putting the finishing touches on our asset management study uh, and tool. 
For synthetic fields, we look at their general condition and test their impact ratings, uh, which is sort of the safety for users uh, on an ongoing basis uh, to ensure proper uh, safety levels are met. With trails, we look to complete a pavement condition index, uh, excuse me, assessment every four to five years, and our most recent one has just wrapped up. Uh, and lastly, we are finishing up a condition assessment of our 65 pedestrian bridges and fords, which help us set a replacement and repair priorities. So all that brings us to our 2024 budget request. Uh, for 2024, our budget is over just $21 million. Uh, it's made up of our PAYGO, bond funds, short-term financing, uh, our partnerships, uh, such as those with APS for cost-share fields and the Arlington Neighborhoods Program, and our existing balances uh, that help us leverage some project savings. DPR's only new maintenance capital project request uh, this year is for Doctors Run Park. Uh, this is for $623,000 for the design of a new playground, volleyball court, circulation, furnishings, landscaping, store manner management uh, improvements. The remainder of our request is a continuation of our FY23 design funded projects or ongoing items, uh, and these include our capital asset manager that manages our asset uh, study and plan, the field fund which accounts for the fees taken in from our field support user groups, the feasibility studies implementation program that provides funding for short-term needs required by current projects, and fitness equipment replacement that allows a replacement of equipment in our recreation centers uh, when it wears out. Our synthetic turf replacements are typically funded through the short-term finance uh, and our synthetic turf program. Uh, next two fields uh, up in our eight-year replacement cycle are Washington Liberty and Williamsburg Middle School. Uh, and those uh, at Washington Liberty High School is a 50-50 cost share with Arlington Public Schools. And Williamsburg Middle School is a 70-30 cost share with Arlington Public Schools. For bond funding, all our projects here are approved as part of the 2023-2032 CIP process uh, and our continuation of work already in progress or commitments made during various uh, planning processes. They include Bailey's Branch Park, Woodmont Playground, uh, Douglas Park, Boathouse, Gateway Park, Jenny Dean Phase 2, Three Urban Parks, the Natural Resiliency Program, and the Trail and Bridge Modernization Program. You might notice here on this slide uh, that our um, capital total, uh, excuse me, bond total is slightly less than one of the previous slides. Uh, and this is due that we are using funds from the Arlington Neighborhoods Program and Trail and Bridge Program as part of our total project funding in order to leverage some cost savings with doing things at the same time via the same contractors. Uh, so there's a slight difference between the two slides. To note, our program was put together with a commitment to maintain a state of good repair, uh, to continue to meet our ongoing planning and asset management commitments, and to continue our good partnerships with external agencies. Uh, so this will conclude my presentation, and I can answer any questions you may have. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Beach. Appreciate it greatly. Colleagues, would you like to start us off with questions? Ms. Crystal. Um, thank you so much for the presentation. A question about the three urban parks piece. That came up a little bit during the CIP last year. And um, I, I know I think at that time we had envisioned it, the planning to kick off a few years out. Um, it had come up a few times in conversations with, with those in the near neighborhood about, in particular, the Dominion parcel. Um, or the, the parcel I think that we acquired, the former Dominion site, right at 18th and Ives. Is that one of the three? So I think the 18th and Ives Dominion parcel is part of the Virginia Highlands Square master planning in small areas. So okay. that is later in the CIP, and I would might need to leak further. I think it's like 27 and 28. Yeah. Um, three urban parks are Mari, um, Gumball, and Hercel Milliken by Virginia Square. I see. So three different urban parks. Three different and urban three parks. Three urban parcels in yes. Virginia. Okay, fantastic. I'm glad to see it. It had been moved up, and I know there um, was an appetite for a little more conversation about that. <laughs> but in the later years, I think the yep. next CIP will be the appropriate forum to have that conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Karen Tonis. 
Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you for the presentation. It's uh, a little bit of follow-up to Ms. Crystals. Uh, can you remind me, uh, because we were talking about the Central Library improvements there, the Quincy, the Quincy Park uh, should be also in the pipeline at some point. It's not in the list here for next year, but can you remind me when, when this would be up for... So it is. We have master plan funding in the uh, adopted CIP, but I think it's out in 28. It's I, might, okay. I might need to confirm that yeah. for you, but it's it's a few years away uh, as the, far. The as reason the why I'm asking is because we have heard a little bit uh, about about that, uh, so uh, I I you know want to know so that I can respond to these questions. Um, Second question is, uh, we, have, we have heard a lot in, lately about um, bathrooms and additional investment in these. Uh, is there anything we can do uh, more out of PAYGO this year, or should this be a more planned activity? So I think um, there's been a lot of, uh, uh, I think you're referring to some of the specific discussions around restrooms, particularly in the Green Valley neighborhood. That was Walter Reed and uh, Green Valley. Yeah. And Green Valley, yep. As in, as in Josh Robinson, uh, John Robinson, John uh, Robinson. Square. So I think the department um, has been having some conversations, has gone out to the neighborhood, I think when Mr. Dorsey was there the other uh, several evenings ago, uh, and we've had met with some of the representatives there. I think we are looking at what might be able to be done in the short term uh, as far as um, you know, addressing the need or the uh, the issues over there and by short term I think I mean you know sort of porta potty other kind of means to do that that are um, we can work into our maintenance budget um, I'm not sure this pago would be a time to deal with a uh, permanent restroom facility because of the cost associated with a permanent restroom facility I think a permanent restroom facility you're looking at probably between 600 to 900 thousand dollars for three uh, stall uh, restroom that we're putting in standard in our, in our parks, and that's because it's sort of standalone, not part of a larger project that might reduce costs. Um, and I don't believe the current PAYGO would probably absorb that or might be appropriate at this point in time until there's sort of more conversations to figure out what the appropriate answer is to uh, solve that issue. Okay, thank you. And just a duly note that there is a, not, not entirely a public consensus in Green Valley about the uh, necessity of a restroom solution, so uh, we, we stand by ready to assist if there should be a consensus that emerges from there. All right, Ms. Garvey. Yeah, thank you. If you could remind me, I should know, but I don't know, where are we on the Arlington Boathouse? What's that, are we a designer building? And then the other question also, I realize I'm not sure what a natural resiliency program is. Okay, um, so I, before I get to those two questions, I did get a little bit of information. The Quincy Park Master Plan is in 2031 in the uh, adopted CIP. Sorry to That's fine. jump in front of your question, okay. uh, your questions. So as far as the, I'll take them backwards, the National Resiliency Program uh, was one of the new programs in our last, in the last CIP, and the one that was adopted in 2022. Uh, uh, that established uh, our ability to be able to, on an ongoing uh, uh, way, funded every other CIP cycle uh, to allow us to do uh, sort of large scale um, uh, natural capital to deal with reforestation, large-scale reforestation, large-scale invasive removal, stormwater erosion in our park system that may not be part of the, the primary system for erosion control and things like this. Uh, and so that is a program that is was funded during the, that CIP for us to be able to um, to uh, tackle some of those issues. And sort of to like. respond to them. I mean, it's not like it's all we're all planned out exactly what's going to be done or yeah. it's responsive sort of to what we need. Okay. And that's partly why it's a program. Um, so, for example, this year we, we started funding the, um, the Emerging Uses Program, 
and then the next cycle would be the natural resiliency. But for the immediate program, which was emerging uses, we defined some of the pickleball uh, program projects and things we're doing. When we get to the next CIP, we will define a little bit farther what the natural resiliency program will be. So the next CIP, I would expect, would have some specific project um, uh, references in it. Boathouse. Yeah. Boathouse. Currently, we are still working with the National Park Service. Uh, we are working on a, um, a memorandum of understanding uh, that is defining the terms and conditions for the agreement that we need to sign with the Park Service uh, in order to um, lay out what our long-term sort of obligations as far as uh, access to the property, uh, who has uh, certain management and maintenance rights of dif different parts of that project, the boathouse, um, access to the water is on Park Service property, the building where they may have restrooms and storage are on county property, and so there has to be, there's what was known as a cooperative management agreement that needs to be signed. Uh, we are exchanging uh, drafts with their attorneys and, and our attorneys are going back and forth right now. Uh, we are hoping that that will be concluding uh, later this year, uh, which we will be immediately moving towards our uh, cooperative management agreement, which the board would need to, to, um, to uh, approve when we get there. Uh, but our timing is such that we believe we will be able to get to uh, begin some of our master planning for the boathouse later this year. And when I say get to it, it may be our uh, implementation of that. So the public side may be the year after in 2024, uh, but that will be allow us to lay out sort of uh, what our use program might be there or different options for the use program to kind of establish different levels of cost, uh, some of the phasing uh, and some of the other um, needs as far as uh, access to the site, both pedestrian and vehicular, vehicular, uh, and some of the connections and things like that. Thank you. Cool. I think I first was lobbied about this in 1996 or seven. Thank you. Exciting to see it getting somewhere. <laughs> a couple of low-dollar uh, questions here. Um, first, as it relates to the parks that we, you know, doctors run that we're doing, or the the scoping and planning that we're doing on many of the uh, many of the neighborhood parks, are we thinking about anything different in terms of uh, signage or uh, kiosks or facilities in light of the post-COVID world to either advise people about how to safely play or to provide opportunity for wipes and, and hand sanitizer and those sorts of things as permanent features of our parks? So we have um, uh, begun to look at, well, I shouldn't say not begun, almost every project there's a conversation about you know, community uh, signage boards and kiosks, and so we always have a conversation about what's appropriate and where it's appropriate, both for um, the access to be able to provide some management operations of them. Uh, you know, they make sure the messages are appropriate and they don't get torn apart and things like that. Um, I'm not, we have not really gone down the road of looking at providing permanent wipes and things like that. I think that's sort of a little bit of a global conversation we need to have with some of our uh, partners in our uh, operations side for Parks and Natural Resources uh, and how that might be done. Uh, I don't see why it could not be part of the conversation. Uh, I haven't known, we have not made any significant changes in that way yet. Okay. And in terms of the community fitness center equipment, I love that we proactively replace stuff. One of the most frustrating things in any community center, not in Arlington, but in other places that I visited, are getting your sights set on using a particular apparatus and to find out that it's broken, and then you go back weeks later and you still see that broken sign on it. So I love it. It's terrific. Uh, but mindful that we are doing it proactively. Um, what is our plan for disposing of it? assuming that it still does have some useful life, mindful of the adage that one man's trash is another person's treasure. So I may need to um, ask for a 
correction on this if, if I'm incorrect. Uh, most of our equipment, I believe, is, is a lease situation. I'm seeing yeses from, ah, from the gallery. So got it. Uh, when something is um, needs to be replaced, we are it's done through the lease, leasing company uh, and the contract that we have. They come in and replace it that way. Okay. I've got a copy edit for the budget book for you in future years, just to make sure that's, that's clear. Okay. <laughs> All right. Any other questions for Mr. Beach? Terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, next up we are going to turn to public safety capital and I think calling in from a secure location would be Jeff Bergen. Jeff? Good afternoon, yes, good afternoon. Um, my name is Jeff Bergen and I'm the financial officer for the Department of Public Safety, Communications and Emergency Management. And I'm proud to represent our public safety agencies today from the police, fire, sheriff, uh, public safety communications and emergency management uh, organizations. Uh, I'm joined on teams by some of our, our members of our agencies, as well as uh, some of our leadership uh, with you here today and subject matter experts if you have any questions at all. Um, I'm excited to present not only our projects, but also our capital process. Uh, we feel we have one of the more innovative approaches in the region when it comes to the combination of both public safety uh, and public safety technology. And this is in large part due to our public safety information technology program managed by Mary Paxton, uh, who has team members who focus on IT applications, infrastructure, and project management for our critical public safety systems. Provides great expertise and consulting level service uh, across all the public safety agencies. Um, but where I think this program is even more impactful, as you can see on the screen, is in our governance board structure, where we have a deputy county manager who convenes public safety chiefs, as well as the county CIO to discuss our strategic investments around public safety and technology. Uh, these items can include our regional collaboration on systems, joint purchasing agreements with council of governments, as well as the long range communication planning and systems to name a few. I think having this approach uh, has led us to the creation of industry standard refresh cycles for our core systems. Uh, many of which I'm going to talk about today, and some of them who are for replacement in FY24, project implementation schedules and management to ensure that our projects are managed on time, and regional collaboration. And I think those are some of the huge uh, benefits of this program. Next slide. For our last uh, 10 year CIP that we did, we really stopped thinking of our assets in terms of departments and really started to look at the programs that they represented as our public safety systems often cut across departmental lines and provide value across the public safety enterprise. So this really helped us with the prioritization of these projects as a group. Um, we renamed our buckets into six program areas to better demonstrate the impact of that investment. Um, I won't go through all these as you can see on the on the slide, but these are our six areas and some of our notable inventory in there. But we're able now to focus on what helps to improve public safety in areas like public safety communications, whether that be replacement of our radios or a new 911 phone system. If we're looking at improving our public safety facilities, we may be looking at our fire station alerting system. And when we're looking at our IT applications and hardware, that could be uh, something like our mobile data terminals, as well as our records management systems. Next slide. 
when we're also looking at our core systems and our inventory, we start to realize that these do have regular refreshment cycles. So as a result, we feel like we're having a lot of accomplishments and work underway on an annual basis. And we're also feeling like we're making a good dent on that inventory. So kudos to our PSIT team for, for managing that. And some of the successes that you see up here are how we have utilized our prior capital funding to great success. Uh, in almost every single one of these cases, these achievements are not new programs, but they're the constant refreshment of that core of our core systems. And that's really helped our first responders on a day-to-day -day basis, having the tools that they need. Next slide. And when we're looking at our FY24 projects, uh, this is just another slice of our inventory. It's about 10% of our 10-year CIP total uh, to continue that overall refreshment of our core systems. Um, this year, our public safety radio project represents new radios for police, sheriff, and DIPSM. Uh, this is one year one of a three-year replacement plan to replace over 1,400 radios. We do that over a three-year period of time due to the large size of the inventory, so we don't cause too much disruption to our public safety uh, program and our public safety communications. Next is our fire defibrillators. Those will also be replaced in FY24. These items have a seven-year useful life and fire will be able to purchase and deploy those in FY24. And our fire apparatus replacement program represents the continuous refreshment of our fire vehicles. I know we talked a lot about that during our uh, general fund budget discussion. Uh, this has been a great program and allows us to ensure that we're operating safe and reliable equipment uh, on a regular basis. And lastly is our e-summon system, which is funded through uh, like a user-generated $5 fee. It's replaced when the revenue received can cover the cost of that system. Next slide. And again, this is kind of our, our uh, investment in FY24. Um, one of the things that we're really proud of is that on an annual basis, our, our investments are sim similar each fiscal year, and that's not an accident. Uh, the governance board and PSIT have spent a considerable time ensuring that our projects, both in scope and in dollars, represent a smooth investment cycle each year. And we have found that that's given um, a really good path towards success in terms of implementation um, of the projects to be on time and on budget. Next slide. I believe that may be it for our public safety capital. Um, and any questions that, that you all may have. Thank you very much, Mr. Bergen. We appreciate it. Any questions, Ms. Garvey? Yes, sorry, one. Um, in years past, we used to hear a lot about public safety radios, and I don't know if these are the same ones, and the um, attempts to try to go as a region and buy it or with other um, uh, jurisdictions in order to save money because we were kind of over a barrel with, the, with these radios. Is, where's that? Is that still happening? Are we coordinating with others? Did it fall apart? Um, I know with all of our purchasing, we do coordinate with, with our other partners in the region. Um, I will defer to Stuart Sands in terms of our, our working with other regional partners in terms of uh, getting those prices down and in terms of the radio themselves for interoperability. Stuart, if you could answer that. Yes, currently we are uh, using a contract that is uh, a national capital region contract, and it gives us a discount off of the, the price of Motorola. I know that the uh, Council of Governments is looking to put a contract out on the streets in future years to do it as a regional purchase uh, program, but right now we are on a program where we have a reduction in price. 
Thank you. Sounds like we're coordinating and trying to get the price down as much as we can as a region, and that's great. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for surfacing that question. I mean, anybody who does the math, recognizing that there are probably a few different devices that we're including in this, but that comes to an average price of about 2000 bucks, which seems ridiculous until you find out that that's actually what these things cost <laughs> in the real world. And, um, you know, appreciate the efforts to drive down costs as much as possible. Any other questions? All right, I think we're ready to move on. Thank you very much, Mr. Bergen. Thank you. So I actually did want to note something as far as I'm breaking news. I just got a note from the you know, chief of police that there had been a bank robbery down at the Wells Fargo and Clarendon with a hostage situation, but it's been resolved appropriately. There is one person that had to get transported, a woman who's pregnant who is being looked after, but the suspect is in custody. I just wanted to let you know that since that was breaking news. Thank you for letting us know. Thanks to the police for resolving the situation, presumably without any significant injury to anyone, and uh, second bank robbery within a week, I believe, in Arlington. All right. I think up next is the Department of Technology Services. And I'm going to turn it over to our director, Norrin Lee, and he will begin the presentation. Thank you, Mr. Swartz. Good afternoon, Chairman, board members. I am Norrin Lee, the director of the Department of Technology Services, and I'm joined by my senior leadership team, Richard Archambault, Holly Hartel, David Hurley, who is coming in via Teams. I'm Lee Solstegi, Gilbert Pisano. Jeff Taylor, and Jonathan Manley. Uh, first slide, please. So the mission of DTS is customer service centric and incorporates four key principles, security, stability, sustainability, and innovation. Next slide. So I'd like to highlight some of a few of our key accomplishments this year starting with the network upgrades of the courts police building from a one gigabyte network to a 10 gigabyte network, which has resulted in improved network speed and capacity. In the realm of PC replacements, we've completed 755 planned device replacements, with 91% of them being laptops and 9% being desktops. Uh, for devices that needed replacement due to incidents, we replaced 147 of them, with 76% of those being laptops and 24% being desktops. In terms of our Connect Arlington accomplishments, we successfully deployed the fiber network to both the Animal Welfare League of Arlington and the temporary fire station 8. Both locations operate now on a 10 gigabyte connection. In the area of unified communications and lifecycle refresh, we've kicked off two major projects, the Telephone System Upgrade Project and the Enterprise Finance and HR System Modernization Project. We'll delve into details of these initiatives later in the presentation. Uh, finally, we're excited to announce the partnership with the Treasurer's Office. We've successfully completed the deployment of a new online payment solution for non-traditional requests. This includes FOIA requests for the Arlington County, for the County Attorney's Office and Police in Compliance with Virginia State Guidelines, 
which mandate that jurisdictions provide an online payment option for FOIA requests by July 1st, 2023. So overall, we're very proud of what we've accomplished this year and excited to continue delivering on ongoing projects. Next slide. Projects underway. Some key projects currently underway, starting with the network bucket. We have various edge refreshes underway, while in the unified communications bucket, we are undertaking two courtroom upgrades to support body-worn cameras, as well as updates to conference rooms in the remaining 55 rooms throughout the county. The equipment needed for the completion of these projects have been delayed due to supply chain issues, but we anticipate receiving the necessary equipment later this summer and completing the projects by fall of this year. Regarding Connect Arlington projects, we will begin undergrounding fiber at Taylor Elementary and Jamestown Elementary in May of 2023, and at Cardinal Elementary and Claremont Elementary in June of 23. We are also expanding the Connect Arlington fiber network to two additional locations, the ARP bus operations and maintenance facility in the neighborhood, and the DHS group home on 1212 South Irving Street. Both locations will operate on a new high-speed 10 gigabyte connection. Looking at what's underway for the life cycle refresh program, we're currently assessing the feasibility of moving the existing enterprise records management system on base to the cloud. We anticipate providing more updates later this summer. Additionally, as mentioned on the previous slide, we've kicked off the finance and HR system modernization project. We're expected to have the financial services component of PRISM in the cloud up and running in the summer of 2024, followed by the HR component in the fall of 2024. Next slide. DTS CIP projects underwent equity review last summer to consider potential impacts on racial equity from public impact to staff impact to incidental impact. We used a framework developed by the county chief equity officer to assess the benefit and or burden of budget request proposals on marginalized communities. This process raised awareness and provided a fresh perspective for integrating racial equity considerations into project development and implementation. The broadband study being led by CPHD will provide further insight into community needs and make recommendations for the county to consider for further action and development. This all will help raise the awareness of racial equity considerations in our department. Next slide. We would like to share with you a list of our capital asset inventory, which includes both hardware and software components. While we will not go into detail about each asset, we would like to highlight some exciting news. As a result of our migration to the cloud, we will be able to significantly reduce the number of telephone system handsets by 3,284 for a projected net savings of 788,000. This number is based on the results of a telephone system study and assumption on staff usage. Additionally, we anticipate that the number of servers and hosts maintained on-premises in our physical locations will decrease. And we will have more precise details on the exact numbers as we get closer to the end of FY24. Next slide, please. We'd like to provide you a high-level overview of our funding sources. Although the big number of $7 million is noted, it is only, this only includes the PRISM project, the upgrade to the HR and financial system going into the cloud. A significant portion of our projects are funded through short-term financing and pay-as-you-go dollars. 
Next slide. We'd like to share with you a high-level breakdown of our proposed budget allocations for the fiscal year 2024. Our proposed investments represent our dedication to enhancing our services in the coming year, totaling just under 15 million. We'll begin by delving into the details and investments in the following slide. Next slide, please. For network, as part of our network program for the fiscal year 2024, we plan to upgrade and replace end-of-life network equipment. This includes upgrading 39 routers, 164 switches, and firewalls, as well as improving security devices across the county. We will also be upgrading 11 sites across the county to 10 gigabyte connections and implementing Wi-Fi upgrades throughout the area. We anticipate these upgrades result in significant improvements in wireless connectivity. Our continued investment in this program will ensure that our network infrastructure remains up-to-date, reliable, and secure. Next slide. Currently, we operate out of three data centers, Trades, Bozeman, and Equinix. FY24 will mark the end of our last major server hardware refresh cycle. As we approach the end of this cycle, we will be shifting our focus towards investing more in cloud services and less in physical hardware. While this is the last large-scale hardware refresh that we will see, our storage needs, both on-premises and in the cloud, continue to grow at an average rate of 17% annually, mainly due to the number of documents we require to maintain. Next slide. Workforce modernization. In FY23, the county procured fewer laptops and desktops than planned due to re a reduction in the device modernization account. This affected device availability and configuration support. While there was short-term impact, the county may be able to extend the useful life of devices without impacting our users. The reduction in budget also prevented proactive replacements and added a significant backlog of work. For configuration support, with a plan of 2.9 million in FY24, DTS expects to return to many structural aspects of the FY23 spend plan and reduce the backlog. Next slide. The county's current phone system was installed in 2008 and needs to be upgraded to keep pace with modern phone systems and communication methods. A study conducted in 2022 found that a new cloud-based system could lower costs and increase utilization by combining various voice communication systems. The new system would provide an omni-channel experience for customers, whether someone calls them by phone whether someone sends us an email or visits our website and interacts with, say, a chatbot, we should be able to help them no matter which way they choose to contact us. Funding requests for two years would enable the full implementation of the new system across the enterprise. With DTS being the first department to transition by September 2023, a, a timeline of department cutovers will be shared with the enterprise by June 23. We expect full completion of the project by September 2025, which result in reduction of physical desk phones of 3,284, migrating most staff to soft phones. This result in the net savings, as previously stated, of 788,000 in CapEx spend. Next slide. What's a soft phone? A soft phone is basically, it's, it's 
on your computer, your base of your, your computer is your phone. Voice over IP. Like Teams, yes, exactly. Or Jabber. Oh, I'm sorry, Connect Arlington. Connect Arlington, our fiber network that currently covers over 60 miles and connects over 100 structures. In FY24, we plan to implement several upgrades to enhance the network's resiliency and redundancy. Specifically, we plan to undergo aerial fiber at North Glebe and Chesterbrook to migrate the risk of fiber, to, I'm sorry, to mitigate the risk of fiber damage from storms and to avoid the cost of pole rent renewal, which is coming due in December. Additionally, we will create redundant fiber paths at Sequoia Plaza and Alexandria to ensure that communication can still occur through alternate fiber paths if one is, if one is damaged. These upgrades will increase the network's resiliency and redundancy, ultimately improving the reliability and availability of Connect Arlington. Next slide. Our aim is to modernize the county's core enterprise financial and human resource system. We are currently in the design phase of the project. The next three months, we will see a quick transition to a configuration phase. The funding being requested will cover two, year two of this two-year project, which includes testing, training, and post-go-live support. Key milestones include the financial services component, accounting and budgeting being up and running by July 1st, 2024, and the HR component, timekeeping and payroll by September of the same year. Next slide. We've concluded our preliminary assessment of the first application property search, which is intricate and interacts with multiple data sources. Our analysis focuses on identifying requirements for transitioning this application to the cloud. And we are working with a vendor to support us in this process. The lessons we learn during the transition of this application will be beneficial in informing our cloud migration strategy for the other on-premise applications. In year two, we intend to accelerate our cloud migration efforts to include the remaining 20-plus applications in our e-government application suite. Arlington's app inventory application consists of a total of 453 applications, with 69% serving department-specific functions, 31% providing enterprise-level solutions. None of these 51% are hosted in the cloud, with their hosting solutions provided by Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, and other vendor-specific options. The remaining 49% are hosted on-premise, located in Bozeman, Equinix, or Trades. As part of our current CIP budget, we plan to migrate some key enterprise applications, such as PRISM, our finance and HR system, e-government suite of applications, and OnBase, enterprise records management system to the cloud. Next slide. So key budget considerations. In conclusion, the budget considerations for FY24 focus on three key areas, security and resiliency, migrations to the cloud, and workforce mobilization. To support these objectives, several initiatives have been proposed, such as the upgrade and replacement of end-of-life network equipment, implementation of cloud-based phone systems, and modernization of the HR finance systems. 
Additionally, the county plans to accelerate its cloud migration efforts to include the remaining 20-plus applications in the e-government application suite. These initiatives will enhance the reliability, availability, and efficiency of the county's operations while improving the user experience for both employees and customers. The continued investment in these programs will enable the county to remain competitive, agile, and responsive to changing business needs, ensuring that it can effectively address future challenges and opportunities. That concludes my brief. Thank you, Mr. Lee. Any questions from colleagues? Well stated, I think we're all excited to see some of these things like PRISM come to fruition. How long have we been talking about PRISM? <laughs> well, I think we've been talking about it a long time. The question is, it's supposed to be better now. Um, <laughs> Ms. Garvey. Yeah, so how, when we go to the cloud, I assume things are um, more, it's faster, it's more secure. Is that correct? Yeah, well, so when you go to the cloud, really it's a, it is more secure and it's giving the option where you can access from anywhere at any time. And if we need, I know we're always trying to update programs and things, is it easier to do once it's on the cloud? Because I know sometimes it's, we struggle with trying to get programs or applications that we have to be working better? I mean, everybody's looking at me confused. I'm probably misunderstanding no, 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 the no, question. No. So it depends on the cloud model that you go with. So for uh -huh. example, if you're going with software as a service where the entire application is hosted by the cloud provider, they're doing everything. They're maintaining the back end behind it as far as updating the hardware. So we don't have to update the hardware. Right. We don't have to update the software. They'll do that whole thing. So it just depends on what level you go with. But in general, we will no longer have to maintain the hardware. For okay, that we put and we might go to, so we, I, I gather we're not, we're at different levels, but at some point, it seems to me it might make it easier for us to update things. A little bit like, you know, Apple sends me, hit the button and it all automatically updates, whereas it feels like to me here, we're often talking about trying to make our programs update them and get their work better, and we can't, because it's so hard. So, by migrating to the cloud, what it's going to do is free up resources where they're no longer doing the back-end stuff, and they can now focus on enhancements and features to an application or, or a service. Or Thank system. you. Thank you. Good. That's what I wanted to hear. I have one more question really quick. So is it possible that um, something might happen and, like, for a while we, like, couldn't get to the cloud anymore? I mean, something happened. I mean, is that is that possible? You said everything's on the cloud, so what if all of a sudden we can't get to the cloud and back and forth because of, I don't know, whatever? So. In general, there's going to be redundancy in place. There'll be different ways to connect, but there's always the chance of some type of significant outage where we would not have access to, if we don't have access to the internet, for example, we wouldn't be able to get to the cloud services that are being provided. Yeah, thank you. Or even the cloud has trouble. But then we have backups. I understand. I, I think I heard we have backup things here. We have backup connections, but if we lose connection to the cloud completely, or we lose every all internet connection, which is a scenario that we laid out in a tabletop exercise, then we would have to look for alternative means. So you would have a, a period where you may not have, be able to access right. the services. Thank you. All I wanted to hear was you played it out in a scenario and you're planning, you're planning for it in case. Thank you. That's it. Yeah. We, we played it out in a scenario with our executive leadership team and we're also going to give you the benefit of playing out a scenario. What happened if county board members could not use the internet? Some call that a dream scenario. I don't. <laughs> no, that, that would be good. Um, yes. I'd love that. All right, Mr. DeFerranti, next. Um, thanks very much for all the work, the um, prison as well as the, the phones. I don't know what you'll do with the phones, but 2008 does sound long enough ago that um, <laughs> um, just thanks for all the work. Uh, connect to Arlington. Do we have a sense of when the 
study will be done, not a month, but is it a quarter basis? I'm sorry, I don't want to slow us down. I just like to, this is one area I like to So Holly Hartel can talk for us. I can answer that question. So we're working with CPHD. The needs assessment, which is the first phase, is just coming in. We're finding it and should be sending it to the county manager very shortly. The next phase is the model evaluation. So what are the different types of models, whether it be infrastructure, subsidies, looking at that and say how does it meet our needs is the next phase and then the final phase is recommendations. So the, so the first phase, the needs assessments, which should be coming very shortly. The next phase, um, the model evaluation, I'd say a couple of months and then we'll be looking at maybe se September, October for the um, recommendations. Okay, sometime around there. Thanks very much. Yep, appreciate great. it. Thank you, Mr. Carantonis. Thank you. Something very, very, very similar to Mr. Ferranti's. Uh, so uh, during the pandemic, we have uh, increased the availability of internet services to uh, certain communities. Uh, and I see that you are really here on a uh, program to replace uh, uh, everything, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, connected to connect Arlington at the 10G uh, capacity. Does this include these, uh, you know, these these uh, routers and uh, the, the the blast uh, elements that we are uh, making, uh, you know, um, Arlington Wireless public publicly available internet here and in places where we made it available, you know, outside of libraries and down in Arlington Mill. Does this include these? Yeah, so we have plans to continue, well, not only the refresh of the hardware, but we're also expanding our footprint as far as giving more capabilities, whether it's wireless capabilities or Connect Arlington projects that we have that are still going forward to expand those capabilities out to different parts of the community. So we are improving, actually, the... Yes. Okay. That's correct. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Looks like that concludes the questions. Thank you, Mr. Lee. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you, everyone. Paging Vijaysa Huffman and Sarah Crawford. Oh, you drew the short straw. <laughs> I think we're going to start with with you, Ms. Huffman, right? Uh, actually, Sarah. Oh, Sarah. Okay. Over to Sarah Crawford. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, and as mentioned, um, my name is Sarah Crawford, and I'm joined in presentation by Vijaytha Huffman, our Transportation Funds Manager. We also have a number of DES staff with us. Um, should there be any questions that arise, including Greg Emanuel, Mike Moon, Hoi Wong, and Tyler Smith. Um, with that, um, we can launch into the presentation. Uh, we wanted to share with you the projects that are, will be in construction in calendar year 2023. We have a number of projects that are in active construction at this moment. Those are the light blue stars on the screen. Um, we also have several projects that will be moving into construction in calendar year 2023, and those are the black stars on the screen. I did want to acknowledge the concentration of blue in Pentagon City and Crystal City. 
there is a lot going on in this area, not only our projects where we have our right-of-way inspectors and our construction managers on site, along with our contractors and their construction managers. We also have private development ongoing with their construction managers. All this to say there's a lot of activity, a lot of detours, a lot of challenges in the right-of-way. We acknowledge that and we are monitoring this. Um, it, it will be messy for the next couple of years, um, but we're, we're hopeful for the future where the right-of-way will be a lot easier to traverse for those um, that are making their way through this area, hopefully by foot, by bike, um, by transit, and also by car. Um, shifting to the next slide, we wanted to focus on the Neighborhood Complete Streets program um, when we look at equity in the Transportation Capital Program. The Neighborhood Complete Streets program was established in 2016 to improve accessibility and connectivity on our neighborhood streets. Um, the locations are nominated by community members. Anyone can submit a location for consideration. And they are ranked using the guidelines that um, were approved by the board and now um, amended by the Neighborhood Complete Streets Commission. I'll take a moment to review some of the projects that we've completed. Um, the program has installed tactical improvements, such as the red shading um, in the intersection to increase visibility of other users in the right-of-way other than cars. We've also partnered with our transit team to install bus shelters and sidewalk improvements um, in neighborhoods, as well as add sidewalks to some of our streets that don't have sidewalks. One of the ways that the Neighborhood Complete Streets program has included equity in their ranking is by adding this as a factor in 2022. And on the next slide, we talk a little bit about the methodology for how the staff and the commission use equity as part of their consideration for selecting projects. As I mentioned before, community members identify locations those locations are first screened um, by presence of sidewalk as well as reported crashes. And if a minimum threshold is met, then they're evaluated for speed and volume. And again, if a minimum threshold is met, they are ranked by a number of other factors, including equity. Um, when we're looking at equity, we look at the Title VI census tracts and locations are awarded five points if they're located in the census tract. Just speaking generally, if the, the point totals are out of 100, um, but we do look at the top 10 scoring locations every year to advance to the Neighborhood Complete Streets Commission. And for this round, um, two of the projects were elevated into the top 10 scoring locations because of the equity factor. Um, the Neighborhood Complete Streets Commission considers both the quantitative and qualitative elements when evaluating locations to advance for their funding hearing. It advanced six locations for consideration in June. There are three um, tactical projects that will be evaluated as well as um, three capital locations, one of which is located um, within an equity area. On the next several slides, we'll be reviewing the projects. Oh, sorry. Um, carry it with you. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> on the next several slides, we'll be reviewing the projects that are funded with PAYGO. And PAYGO does support our transportation projects across our entire portfolio. But we do limit our requests to programs and projects that are not eligible for TCF and TIF funding and really heavily focused on state of good repair. We have several examples here that you can see of projects funded with PAYGO, and I actually want to draw your attention in particular to this photograph here. It represents our West Glebe Road Bridge, which is currently in construction, and we have actually opened up two lanes of traffic last month, 
and we are expecting to open the bridge, uh, all lanes of traffic this summer, so we're very excited about this project. Then moving on to the next slide. Our total PAYGO request in the FY 2024 proposed budget is 4.4 million, and we also have 10.8 million in geo bonds, total of 15.3. And there is a number of uh, programs that you see on this page, but I'm gonna highlight a few items here. At the top of the page, you see our paving program, and paving is heavily dependent on these two sources of funding. In fact, these are the only two sources of funding that we can use for our paving program. And the level of funding that you see here, the 10.3 million, that represents a roughly 3% increase year over year relative to our calendar year 2023 paving program, because the paving program goes across the calendar year. Um, and at this level of funding, we should be able to maintain our streets in the near excellent condition that they are in. And they, I'll actually have a slide that shows you the pavement condition index. Um, going down actually a few rows, another item I want to highlight here is transportation systems and traffic signals. The 400,000 that you see here in terms of a PAYGO request is roughly 290,000 higher than what we have in our, in our adopted CIP. And the reason for this increase in funding is because we have started a structural inspections program for our signal poles. This is consistent with a program that VDOT uses for their, for their signal poles, because as you can imagine, I mean, these poles are really heavy in terms of like the, the mast and the arm and all. So from a safety perspective, it's, it's critical that we have this. We have actually started the program this year itself, and we were able to leverage the vendor that we use for our bridge inspections, because as you know, we do structural inspections of our bridges as well. Uh, so this is really sort of an important new program that we have started related to our signals um, projects. And then another item I did want to highlight on this page is bus stops ADA, the 250,000 that you see here. This is also incremental to the funding that we have for this program in the CIP. And the 250,000 is specifically to be used to hire a consultant so that they can do some site survey work and compile an inventory of the remaining bus stops that remain to be made ADA compliant. Because we believe that that is the first step for us to then determine a plan to accelerate making all the remaining stops ADA compliant. So, so I think those are the three items I really want to highlight on this slide. And then we can probably move to the next slide. This shows a snapshot of our transportation system and all the assets that we have. And suffice to say that the numbers here have stayed largely unchanged relative to a year ago, uh, with the exception of e-bikes. So I did want to highlight that. We have 1,000 e-bikes across the capital bike share system. Um, and this is much higher relative to a year ago. A year ago, that number was 325. So that's an impressive growth that we have at e-bikes. I think we can go to the next slide. Uh, this shows our, uh, the pavement condition index uh, that we calculate every year. And I'm happy to report that our overall PCI is 83 in 2022. And this is actually a new high that we have achieved. And at an 83 PCI, the streets are near excellent in terms of you know, the definition used by the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, it is important to note that the mild winters in recent years have helped us. So this is something we do keep an eye on. Then going to the next slide. Uh, sidewalks, this is a new program that we started with this CIP that we adopted. 
uh, the, F the 2023 CIP. Uh, the county does maintain over 440 miles of sidewalks, and we have kicked off this program in FY23 with the tripping hazard blitz that we have started, we have launched throughout the county. And actually these photographs here show you sort of the before and after. You can see here the tripping hazard, and then with the shaving that we are able to use actually for a number of these tripping hazards. In some cases, the shaving is not effective, but for many, many of these tripping hazards, we're able to deploy the shaving, and that takes care of the tripping hazard. Uh, we have actually been able to resolve well over 9,000 hazards to date, um, and so we're well on our way, hopefully, to resolving many of the ones identified in the 2021 survey. Um, some of those are trickier, but we're hoping that by the end of FY24, all the ones that we identified in that survey should be resolved. Um, this box here shows you the projected spend for the program. It is higher in FY23. You'll notice that FY23 is higher than the other years, and that is because of our tripping hazard blitz. And then once we get past that, we do settle at about a million dollars a year, and that's an annual, you know, grows annually about 3%. Then going to the next slide. Uh, so trans moving on now to transportation capital funds, TCF. TCF has two components. Uh, we have the local commercial and industrial tax, and we're expecting 25.7 million in FY24. And we also have NBTA local, which is a 30% allocation. And on that, we're expecting 11.6 million. I think we can go to the next slide. We wanted to highlight several projects that are funded in whole or in part by TCF. Um, we do use TCF to leverage a number of external sources. Um, our art operations and maintenance facility is well under construction, which is incredibly exciting. Um, we also have another project um, in transit that's under construction, our transitway extension to Pentagon City, which will be um, constructed in phases. We are anticipating bidding out that second phase this calendar year, although schedules are evolving due to private development schedules shifting, so um, stay tuned on that date. Our Columbia Pike multimodal project, Segment F, is under construction for the folks who may have traveled Columbia Pike recently west of George Mason. Um, it, it is, traffic is flowing well, although slowly, and we're, we really appreciate the patience of those who live around this site. It will be great when it's completed, but it's a challenge when things are under construction, as we discussed. And I, I also wanted to highlight a smaller project, um, a, a Safe Routes to School project that we recently completed, adding a sidewalk on 8th Street North. Then go to the next slide. This is our budget summary for FY 2024 for TCF. On the expenditure side, we are anticipating 127 million in expenditures. It is a large number, but we do have several large projects, like Columbia Pike segment A and F will be uh, fully in construction. It, of course, segment F is in construction, segment A is starting any day now. Um, we also have a number of large transit projects that have been in design for many years, but are moving forward. So for example, Crystal City East Entrance, East Falls Church Bus Bay. So we do expect next year to be a pretty big year from an expenditure standpoint. On the revenue side, we are anticipating between CNI and NBTA local a revenue of 37.4 million. So of course the expenditure is covered in addition to the revenue, the new revenues, it is of course covered by our carryover balances as well as some grant funding that we had, particularly on transit projects, which do tend to have some fairly large uh, grants. On the staff stand, from a staff standpoint, and this is just a number of uh, FTEs that are home costed to TCF, we have 41. 
And then another metric that we do keep a close eye on, so TCF does help to, in addition to funding capital projects, it also covers the cost of operations and program administration. And that is something that has been creeping up every year. In the FY24 proposed budget, operations and program administration will take up 31% of our new TCF revenues. That's almost a third. So that is something we do keep an eye on and, and sort of monitor. Now we're shifting to TIF, the Pentagon City, Crystal City, and Potomac Yard Tax Increment Finance District. TIF pays for a number of infrastructure improvements in this area, not only transportation, but also um, open space and other infrastructure needs as well. There's two projects on this slide that we, we like to highlight. TIF is a, a lesser or a more modest funding source than TCF, so we leverage TIF um, with a number of external sources. We are completing the Boundary Channel Interchange Project in partnership with VDOT, which is one of our delivery methods that's proving to be quite successful, particularly in this location. And we're also moving towards completion on the 12th Street Complete Street, which is a segment of the transit way that does not include transit way stations. This is a budget summary for FY 2024 for TIF. On the expenditure side, we're anticipating expenditures of 11.8 million. And uh, for this, we do have our Army-Navy Complete Streets projects that will be fully in construction next year. Um, additionally, we have projects in the Crystal City portfolio that utilize TIF, and then DPR also has projects. So a portion of that, those expenditures relate to DPR projects. On the revenue side, as, as Ms. Crawford mentioned, TIF is a much smaller source of funds than TCF, and we're anticipating revenues of uh, roughly 4.4 million. And from a staffing standpoint, we have 6.5 FTEs that are home costed to this fund. On this slide, just, we just want to give you a sample of programs that are funded by TCF and TIF. And this just shows the 20, FY24 funding uh, relating specifically to TCF and TIF. So it excludes any other sources of funding, excludes grants, uh, but just to give you a sense of how important this is by, in terms of a, a funding source, uh, particularly if you look at the top part of this, of this table, uh, these are many of our complete streets projects that are handled out of our TPCPM Bureau, and Columbia Pike is sort of the top of the page. It is a huge user of TCF-CNI. It does have some regional uh, funds, but really TCFCNI is by and far the largest funding source for Columbia Pike. Uh, Crystal City, Pentagon City, Potomac Yard Streets, big user of TIF, and then after TIF, uh, CNI, and then Rosen Ballston, which actually has no grants on it, it is a big user of CNI. It uses CNI, and aside from CNI, it benefits from some developer contributions. Um, aside from complete streets, our transit portfolio also uses TCF. Now, they do benefit from grants, but TCF does help to provide a local match, and it also fronts our grants, because transportation grants are reimbursable after the fact. Um, I think, yes, I think those, those are the main points here. So in wrapping up the presentation, we wanted to leave you with some budget considerations that we think about as we're putting together the funding program. Um, as uh, Ms. Huffman mentioned at the beginning of the presentation, we limit our PAYGO dollars to state of good repair and just those items that are not eligible for TCF. 
There may be constraints as we move forward on PAYGO that may help have us think differently about how we deliver some of our pilot tactical or quick build projects to ensure that we're being strategic with our use of the limited TIF or PAYGO dollars um, and think a little bit more broadly for how we deliver our capital projects. Similarly, we do face ongoing budgetary pressures. It has been, has been mentioned multiple times in the presentation. Inflation is a factor that we're watching closely. This particularly affects our signals um, and streetlight projects, as well as the large transit projects that Ms. Huffman also mentioned. As they move through various phases of design, um, construction estimates can fluctuate. And on Crystal City East, we actually have our independent cost estimator developing a cost estimate of what we expect this project might cost us, as an example. Yeah. Um, and the last two items on the slide relate to ongoing and about to start um, planning efforts that will help us to identify projects and initiatives that we will bring forward to you all in future um, CIP and budget rounds. Um, and with that, we would be happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. And let me applaud Ms. Hoffman and Ms. Crawford for the seamless coordination of the presentation. Like, no, <laughs> nodding, you just, it was incredible. All right, Ms. Crystal, why don't you start us off? Yeah, um, uh, two questions, or one question and then one bucket of questions. So um, first, uh, really appreciated the, the spotlight on um, neighborhood complete streets. And then, Ms. Crawford, you were mentioning in closing, right, the, the huge inflationary pressures on our different projects. One of the things... Um, I've heard from both our Neighborhood Complete Streets Commission and then a kind of a theme from the, um, oh, I will never not call it Arlington Neighborhoods Conservation. It is now Arlington Neighborhoods. Is that the name of our? Arlnack. Arlnack. Arlnack, yeah. thank you. One of the things we hear from them as well is that projects that can be done with internal county resources just work better and faster and more effective um, than those that go out to contractors. Um, uh, to what extent have, do you feel like that's been validated internally and is there any opportunity for us to look to hire more to try to bring more of that in-house as we're seeing you know, our, our contracts um, uh, start to balloon? Yes, we have validated that through the Neighborhood Complete Streets Program. One of the images of the completed project on the slide, the bus shelter project and sidewalk improvements, was completed with our internal staff. And I think we saved about $200,000. Um, so not only were we able to deliver the project maybe a little bit faster, but we also did so little less funding, which is fantastic. As to the staffing on that, that would be, I think, beyond the transportation scope as we do use other members of the DES staff and water sewer streets. I do know that we also use on-call contracts as well, so that's another mechanism that might be available. Great. Could I ask just by way of follow-up to maybe ask the um, Water Sewer Streets Bureau to, to give some insight about, um, you know, I think we often talk about are we being uh, pennywise pound foolish, right? Is there a way maybe to make some upfront investments um, in more personnel that could ultimately lead to more cost savings on these contracts that are going long? Any thoughts you have or insights for grist for the mill? It doesn't have to be now if follow-up makes more sense. Um, okay, I didn't want to put anybody on the spot, but it, it is, it's interesting to know that's been validated too. Um, and then, okay, so a, a handful of questions, I think, all relatively quick about paving. Um, uh, Ms. Huffman, you had mentioned that um, weather has been on our side with the pavement conditioning index. When we have uh, just sort of less significant um, wear and tear on our roads because of that weather, do we proceed with um, paving other streets or do we realize that as cost savings? So I think at this point, uh, the streets are, are at a level in, the, in terms of this pavement condition index, such that we actually have to 
invest to maintain them yeah. at this level? Because if we don't put in a certain level of investment, then the streets would deteriorate back. So certainly at 83 pavement condition index, this is the highest that we have achieved. And they are sort of in the, at the near excellent level. Um, but I don't know if others have any other insights. And if I could add. put just a slightly different gloss on, uh, to clarify what I'm asking, we've got about 10.3 uh, million, right, in that program. If there are not reports of massive potholes because it wasn't a snowy winter, are we just not spending down some of that 10.3 million, or is there more protective work that it's being spent on instead? Is sort of the specific question there. So we basically, by checking the condition every year, we account for both weather and other factors. Okay. So one of the things I've been noticing lately is it's not just the weather, it's the development and the construction right. that also beat up the roads. Yeah. In, you know, we try to uh, get our development uh, as part of our agreements to cover that road segment typically in front, but it doesn't cover that stretch over here and that stretch over here. So there's a lot of factors that come into the condition of our roads and by doing it, doing it annually and adjusting our uh, amount of investment uh, to accommodate that condition and then of course the cost that goes with that. So there's a lot of, there are a lot of variables that go into every year's uh, amount that we're do, trying to do. But it would not be correct to say it's been a mild winter, so we can expect to have carryover in our no, UPI budget. No. Okay. We, we will just, we'll, you know, and it's not just paving, it's also those other things. Sometimes we might reallocate. If we if we were in a little bit better condition, we might say, okay, now, now this year, let's go after uh, some of these problematic segments that, that, that are more expensive, where okay. we do full depth repair, for example. Okay. So, we, so we, we can allocate between the different things we're doing. Okay, and then just the last question, then I'll yield. Um, so why a 3% increase? Is that because cost of materials are going up, uh, just general? So 3% is the infl inflationary factor that okay. has been used in the CIP. Now, okay. arguably, it has actually been sort of lower than it should be relative to the inflation. In fact, when we do our CIP this year, it'll be interesting to see, you know, we'll probably have some discussions internally on what may be appropriate. but. The adopted CIP, as similar to prior adopted CIPs, used a 3% inflationary factor. And does that come, the increase in 3% comes both from PAYGO and bond sources, or? It, it, it does come from both PAYGO and from bond sources. And, and paving just, uh, you know, is impacted, in, aside from general inflation, it's also impacted by oil prices. Oh. Thank you. All right, Ms. Garvey. Yeah. I'd just like to say earlier, the paving project was one of my most satisfying experiences when I first got on the board because people were complaining about the roads big time. And then we put money in, and a couple of years later, people started stopped complaining. I mean, you could see, you can't always see. You put money in the budget, and it just get the results. So that, that was great. I'm glad we're keeping them up. Um, one comment, I was so pleased to see the study for the ADA-compliant bus stops. Thank you very much. That's something that's been kind of nagging at me every budget. I used to ask questions, and I just never got responses that made me feel very comfortable. So thank you. I, I'm really appreciating that we're going to be looking at that and hopefully getting most of our stops um, compliant so people can get around without having to call STAR, things like that. Thank you. Um, question, not exactly on transportation, Columbia Pike. I drive up and down there. Yes, it's kind of, but it's, it's actually running fine. The trees, when are the trees? Are the trees going to get replanted? We're going to put in more trees. I hear more about the trees than the road. 
Yes, I know, and I, I realize that's kind of a, a stark element that is very noticeable painful. to folks right at the bat. But yes, they will be replanted. Um, I don't recall the exact number, but I believe we are replanting more than we are taking down. Um, and they would be um, installed following completion of construction. So just to provide a detail on that, at this point we are um, providing the underground vaults through which we can route the utilities, then we route the utilities, then we complete the um, streetscape improvements, and then the vegetation entries would be installed. So probably a few years. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Thank you. Well, at least I can reassure people that eventually they'll come back. They're coming. And maybe it will be. It, maybe it would be better, and they won't be too small when they start out. Thank you, Mr. Carantonis. Thank you. Uh, I have to say that uh, I've heard a lot about the trees in, on Columbia Pike. The previous segment, we had the replacement of the trees, and they're gorgeous. They are actually very, very good. So uh, that's that's uh, something to be able to to show. Uh, to people who are uh, will rightfully be concerned concerned about that. So I have a different, uh, you, you pointed out that uh, we're inspecting traffic signals, the big, ma the big masts, uh, and so the, there is a, uh, on slide 77, there are $400,000 uh, uh, earmarked for that, if I read it correctly, correct? So what is going on? What is wrong with uh, the signals? Is that the regular maintenance or is that something extra? Well, it's just really quick, just to clarify. I'm sorry, thank you. To clarify, the PAYGO request for signals is 400,000, but the, it increased by 290,000. We already had a PAYGO request for 110,000 because signals, although our signals program is funded by multiple sources of funding, there is an element that is state of good repair for which we have to use PAYGO. So we do typically have a PAYGO request for just state of good repair for signals, but the incremental 290,000 is specifically for structural inspections. And by doing those structural inspections, we will be consistent with VDOT. VDOT does those structural inspections as well, just to ensure that you know, structurally the, the signal pole is, is sound because of the weight of that, you know, of, of the pole and all of that. Yeah, I, I, I understand Sorry, that. Yes. So this is, I, what I'm after is, I, I trying to elicit, is that a, a regular inspection that we have to do or is that something special? It, it, we are adding that regular inspection yes. to our inventory. It's state of practice um, across other um, uh, jurisdictions that maintain their own signals to ensure that we understand where our deficiencies are and where our vulnerabilities are so we know where to program the next replacement dollar. So that was not part of the regular program before and now it's part of the regular program? Correct. So, okay. Great. So the, the issue is that I, I mean, I, I'm not a very big friend of these signals because of the structural issues and the huge colossal, you know, uh, structure. I understand in some places they are more than adequate. I just, uh, it does, will this uh, uh, kind of uh, help us decide whether in some places we shouldn't use them and use just different support for the signals? Uh, I, I think I understand your question. Uh, just first of all, I think that's different from what we're asking for here, which is inspection for existing structure that we want to check if it's still structurally sound. 
And this new method, you know, started with VDOT introducing these. We're trying to uh, meet up with the same standard. So it's like your bridge inspection program. And I understand your question is more on the infrastructure design side. Like, you know, do you design them in a slimmer uh, fashion or, you know, make them more uh, blending with the environment? Arlington actually, I will say, Arlington actually pay more attention in those than your typical um, roadway agencies. Uh, for example, uh, along Columbia Pike, we actually have very specific style, color, and things like that defined. And we also, you know, uh, we do ask for a different finish on our signal posts, so they're not so, you know, intruding to the environment and things like that. Are there additional things we can think of? And I will say we're open to suggestions. Thank you. Uh, what I was thinking is uh, there are, you know, other other places where I mean the, these uh, the signals, this type of support for the signals is associated to you know uh, wide roads, suburban communities, uh, sections that are really oversized for our conditions, and uh, the the idea was to see whether this is a place where we can get some input or some, you know, data that says, oh, look, uh, you know, after several years, this is already a structure that may need a, a, a change or a support or an extra, uh, and uh, that would be a more expensive proposition than, for example, having a different type of support, like, for example, just two poles and two, to signals on that. Uh, we have had this conversation in several places, including Columbia Pike in front of 5500, for example, where there is a huge arc supporting two signals, uh, where I could imagine you know, easier, th easier ways to do exactly the same, uh, and less expensive ways, because you know, the foundation of one of these things is you know, probably, what, $200,000 or something like that, right? I get your point, and uh, without uh, belaboring this conversation, just one thing uh, to highlight. Um, there are some benefits of using the mass arm design because you can actually have sensors and other equipment mounted on those. For example, instead of digging a loop in the lane, which is our traditional way of knowing if there's a vehicle, we can now actually mount the camera on top so that it's all censored. That would reduce a lot of your uh, replacement cost uh, when you have construction, when you have equipment, uh, um, when you have other company coming in, you know, digging a trench in the past, we always have to replace. Just saying that is sort of one of the benefits that may be hidden from the public's eye because they only see the signal heads. I'm open to, to everything. I've seen this mass being populated with more stuff over time. So I and would, the signs and yeah. all that. Yes. Right. Can we move oh, yeah. to Mr. DeFerranti, or are you still okay? Thank you, Mr. DeFerranti. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I have a um, just a couple of items. I don't know that they're questions. Um, I will want to reach out on the bus stops. I think that the same group. There's um, ADA bus stops and sidewalks, and so after the budget, I want to get a little. Briefing on that, um, I appreciate it. The 250,000 is great. I am eager on that, I guess I would just say. Um, you guys have 
probably gotten the glory. There's a question for me for down the road of leasing electric buses. I'll just, you know, I know that's been a lot of time, but I want to, I don't think that's because it's, it seems like it would fit in PAYGO, even though capital is where we fund most of our buses, but that's just something I wanted to uh, mention out loud. I know we have work to do and a budget possibility on headways on Columbia Pike. So if, uh, maybe colleagues or anyone had like a succinct sense of the different buckets of funding and where we are on headways, I'm gonna try and do that. But I wouldn't object if one of you knew where a description of that was and I could go to it. And then I guess one question uh, of our, our work on bus stops, are we, I think it's eight total, are we at six that are actually operational? I haven't been down recently on the pike to see how many have actually been set up or, or if you have any sense on that. Thanks, Ms. The, the last report um, I got, which is last Friday, is we have um, one bus stop uh, near Columbus, um, Columbus Street, yeah. Uh, we are, you know, almost at the final stage of wrapping up. We have another one near Glebe, which we can't turn it on yet because of the nearby construction of the building. Uh, we actually finished the bus stop. All the rest are open. Okay, great. Thanks very much. A lot of little items. Thank you. So anyway, with that, um, I'm going to reserve uh, my questions for writing. They're not extensive, so don't worry. But since we still, I think, do have another handful of slides left in the presentation, I want to make sure I move us along. But thank you very much. We appreciate it. So it's sort of an emotional end to our budget work, work sessions when Jason Fries arrives on the scene. Jason? So we're going to do debt. Yeah, no, he's. Please, please don't be changing. Yeah. Take your time to get your slides. Best for last. There you go. There we go. Yeah, now, and I'll try to be brief. I know you all have been here for two hours now, or two and a, a little over two hours. Um, so. Excellent. So, so I'm going to go over both debt service, and then I'll move on to Metro, um, and then stop for questions. So those are the last two parts of the presentation. So um, debt service, if we can go to the next slide. <clears throat> Just as a reminder for you all, last year we did approve a new 10-year CIP, uh, which covered fiscal years 2023 through 2032. And for county and schools, that totaled uh, $4.4 billion. Now, um, the CIP is a little bit more on the moderate side, size in terms of, you know, how many projects we finance both on our side and the school side. Um, but it did, you know, still remain within our debt and our debt affordability uh, constraints. Um, but it did have, over the next 10 years, a little bit higher debt service growth plan, not just in 24, but in some of the out years as well, just to remind you all. So in fiscal 2024, the total debt service that is budgeted is $79.5 million. Um, this is an increase of $2.4 million, or about 3% over fiscal 2023. To compare this to where we were last year in the CIP, when we were projecting out fiscal 24, we're actually about $3.5 million lower than forecasted. 
And the reason for that is that we deferred the fiscal 20, uh, the last year's bond sale. We, um, you know, with rates going on and mobile market volatility, we had the ability to actually look internally to some of our existing debt uh, capital funding, bond funding, and shift around some of the some of those some of those funds to fund the existing needs, and then defer the remaining projects into this year's upcoming bond sale, which will be in, in, in May or June of this year. Um, so that um, amount will actually um, will actually have some near-term debt, debt service savings. But once we do get back on track and issue all those projects, we will see debt, you know, start to creep, uh, come back up and come back in with our original projections. So <clears throat> for 2024, um, in terms of the total debt we plan to issue, we're looking right now at issuing about $95 million of, of, of debt in June of this year, May or June of this year for county purposes. And this includes things such as we saw just earlier in the presentation for paving, um, some of our contributions to the Metro um, Capital Program, uh, Parks and Facilities Maintenance Capital. Um, there's some projects at the Courts Police Building, some improvements there, the Arlington Neighborhoods Program, Shortbridge Park, and others. Uh, this number will hopefully come down just slightly. We're in the process right now of refining some of those cash flow needs of the projects. And so since we'll be issuing in late May, we're still kind of finalizing does the project need it now, or can it actually wait until next year for the issuance so they can save us just a little bit more on, on that debt service? <clears throat> one, one thing to note here, um, if you look, look below the, the, the middle orange line, uh, the amount that's shown budgeted for AHIF of $9.6 million. So as you all are aware, we recently, about a year and a half ago, financed a $150 million loan um, to a developer for the Barcroft acquisition. Uh, this was secured by a variable rate uh, line of credit uh, while we work through a master development of financing plan and then in the future it will be taken out with permanent fixed rate financing but as of right now it's still a variable rate and i'm sure you all are aware that variable rates have gone up uh you know they're more in line with historical levels but not the absolute you know less than one percent or to give an example of our line of credit it was at um you know 0.4 percent um a year ago substantially you know um a number you'll probably won't see again. Um, so that has increased, and so what we have here is that um, it's increased $5.7 million over last year. So if we go to the next slide, we just want, I just wanna show you one of our ratios. This is the main ratio we always look at in our, in our, in our CIP and also in our budgets, and it's, but it's not our only ratio. We also have a debt to income ratio, um, a debt to assessed value, um, and also total growth over the life of our capital program, but this is the one we usually, you know, deem as the most important. So as you see over the 10 years, we stay within the 10%, but you see that over the entire life, even going out to you know years eight, nine, 2030 and 2031, we're very close to that 10%. And just what I wanted to note here is that while we do have a little bit of savings, you know, um, it's a little bit lower in the CIP in terms of what our debt service is, we still have a pretty robust capital program and we still expect that we'll be rather you know tight in terms of what we can afford over the next 10 years at what we had in the CIP is really still where we're projecting our affordability. <clears throat> so I'll stop there, I guess, on debt services. Stop there, we'll talk, ask any questions you have, and then we'll move on to Metro. Any questions about overall debt service and yeah, debt performance? Just a, a quick one about um, really trying to understand where that, that Barcroft debt service is hitting us. So that 5.7 million, you were describing that as AHIF debt service. Um, is that is that debt service being paid out of the AHIF? Correct. Okay. 
Um, and so our, we anticipate that as sort of an ongoing demand on the AHIF. It will, right, and until we fix it out, we won't know the permanent, what that structure will be, but when we start amortizing the debt and then we fix it out, we'll know specifically what it will be year by year. But as of right now, the entire amount is funded from the AHIF program. Okay, and so um, when the, the manager has proposed, uh, I'm sorry, I should have the number more readily at hand, it's something like, thank you, for, for um, AHIF this year. So that the idea is um, it's eight and a half, the delta between eight and a half and the 5.7 million is sort of the amount that's available for new, would be available for new projects or allocations. As year. far as investments for, um, from the general fund, and I, we sent you a table uh, yesterday, it talks about the estimates we have from developer contributions and repayments to the fund, but okay. your, your statement is correct about what would be available. Thank you. Question. Ms. Garvey. Yeah, thank you. Uh, two questions. Um, so looking out, um, you know, with this bar graph, which is which is great, I, I assume now we're, you're making a guess about what the interest rates are going to be in the future, right, as you calculate that? Correct. So we, the way we budget our capital program, we, you know, we assume a, we have a 5% coupon on our bonds. And so as of right now, we do not have any intention on changing what those projections are that we have in the CIP. We do show, you know, in the out years, we do show that rates will increase. And so while rates have increased now rather substantially, they're still within, municipal bond rates aren't at 5% still. They're still, say, in the low threes. Um, when you average out, uh, we issue bonds over a 20-year life, and this average one year, two year, three year to 20 years. We'll probably be this year still lower than 4%, higher than 3%, but that's well below our budgeted 5%. So as of right now, we don't expect to change anything in our CIP and what we have uh, determined was our affordability, but should things can keep continuing, you know, um, higher and higher beyond what we hear from our, you know, uh, different banks and underwriters that give us information. We may have to revisit in our next CIP, but as of right now, we don't have any intent on doing that. Thank you. Yeah, because we, I, I get it. That's over a long period of time. And then I thought it was really interesting that one of the charts that you had, I think it was chart E. So you've got the ratio of tax supported general obligation debts to income. And it's interesting, although this chart goes, the other one goes up like that. It actually goes down. So I assume you're assuming we're getting more income? That's, that's more just based on uh, on the growth in, right, the growth on income levels within within the county. It's, it's, it's debt to income. Um, we assume, I think it's, is it 2.2% or 2. Point? I don't know. It's, it's, it's low. It's, it's around 3% or less. But with that growth in income, it's greater than the growth in, say, the uh, the amount of total outstanding debt um, versus that. That's the income of our residents. Projected income of the residents, right. So. Income of our residents. Ah, right, income of the residents. I missed Sorry. that. It's I per, per that. capita income, so it's, it's okay. a per capita, so it's yeah, reported by. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's where that number comes from. Very interesting. So it's some of those other. It's comparing from an individual what portion of say their income do we have of outs, of, of outstanding yeah. debt? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. It, it's a little reassuring to have these other bar charts that show we're not quite up against it as much as we see. It's to be. that one still is on the higher side. Um, but it, you know, it, it does get better in the out years, but in right. the, up in the first couple years, it, oh, is, it is higher, right? So, mm -hmm. so okay. that is one we also have to monitor. I'd say that is the second most important one uh, that we have beyond the debt service, um, the outstanding debt service to expenditures. Thank you, and thank right. you for clarifying what income we were talking about. Thank you, Mr. Carantonis. Thank you. Um, so, again, for uh, the debt service of Barcroft, uh, just for me to understand it better. 
So the, uh, this year, uh, we, uh, uh, there is a the, we are proposing to uh, use, uh, uh, to a significant part, uh, Columbia Pike TIF funds to, uh, to pay for the debt service this year. And so next year, if I'm not wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, there will be also some TIF, uh, Columbia Pike TIF money coming in. So this, uh, you know, I, if we, are we assuming that we are going to be using that in addition to AHIF to pay for, for this debt service? Correct, right, so the delta, the difference between yeah. that, that existing TIF money now, uh, the, the one time and then the ex mm -hmm. going forward, the delta will be coming from the AHIF fund. And that would be, that is debt service not supported by AHIF. That's, that's part of debt service, not, not AHIF debt service. Okay, gotcha, got it. That, that, that was what I was trying to understand. Thank you. Okay, I think you can move on to Metro. Okay, so if we go, um, if we bring back up the presentation uh, to Metro. So if we go to the next slide. So with Metro, uh, we have a, I guess, relatively good story for transit uh, for fiscal 2024 with all things considered. Uh, as you all are aware, Metro's operating budget is primarily funded by three revenue sources. Those are passenger revenues, non-passenger revenues like parking and advertising. And then the remaining gap is funded by local jurisdictional subsidies, which is where Arlington comes into their, to their budget. <clears throat> passenger and non-passenger revenues in the past would make up usually around half or a little bit over half um, of their annual operating costs. Post-pandemic ridership has remained substantially below this. Uh, for fiscal 24, uh, projected total revenues are only $509 million, which is about 22% of their total $2.3 billion budget. <clears throat> Fortunately, they still have some remaining federal relief funding of 561 million of that, which will be used to help address that revenue shortfall. Uh, covers most, but not all of the gap for fiscal 24. Um, Metro's 2024 jurisdictional subsidies cover the remaining 54% of that budget at, or $1.26 billion for all jurisdictions, not just Arlington. Um, so those subsidies are based on each jurisdiction's relative share of the bus, rail, and paratransit systems. Uh, Arlington shares usually about six to seven percent of that total jurisdictional subsidy, and that's the same for 24. And so, in fiscal 24, our total gross subsidy, this is before we use other revenues, is 86 million dollars, which is an eight percent increase over fiscal 23. Um, this increase is above what you all have probably you know, heard of, you know, Wamata's cap on subsidies of of three percent annually, and it's over that for two reasons. The first one is that the three percent is done on a jurisdiction level, but at the, at the state, so D.C., Maryland and Virginia, not to the sub, not to Alexandria, Arlington, Loudoun, Fairfax, not down to that sub level, it's just at the higher level. But then there's recalculations within, within Virginia uh, based on the bus and rail mix as other pieces. So, so sometimes each jurisdiction may be higher than 3%, sometimes lower. In fiscal 24, Arlington's a little bit higher. Um, so that's the first reason why we're over 3%. The second reason is that in the 2024 budget for Metro, they have a couple, uh, uh, enhancements to service on both the bus and rail system, and those are considered exclusions. So those are above the 3% cap. And so it's trying to bring riders back to the system, uh, trying to in, you know, increase service as you know, people start coming back, but obviously comes a little bit of a cost. So that was an extra $24 million total, but that increased us. That's why we're at 8% year over year versus normally, you know, say three. And we've been a little bit higher, so like three to 
So on the revenue side, uh, on what's what we're using to fund fund Metro, we were able to increase our annual use um, of state transit aid as well as uh, gas tax revenues. Um, so we um, we've actually we're receiving more revenue from this from the state, and we're also getting a little bit higher in terms of gas gas tax revenues. So this is just a rebaselining, which is it's it's good we're getting it because it's helping to solve this gap that we have in, in fiscal 2024. Um, we also include funding. We have a bus fareless, bus fareless pilot program that's for Arlington Public School students, uh, and that will be funded through this year through the use of some ARPA funds. And so, what that means is, when we get to the general fund and what that's supporting, that we're able to keep the annual increase for Metro down to a rather modest two percent, or forty-seven point five million dollars uh, over fiscal twenty-three. So, if we go to the next slide, um, this is more of the scary news, which is looking forward. But while 24, we've solved it through the use of those, those federal funds that were still exist at Metro to help solve their budget gap, um, fiscal 2025, none of that revenue will be remaining. It'll be all used up. So with the ongoing low ridership revenues, initial projections that, and this is a few months old, so it's out maybe a little dated, but Metro showed a 2025 subsidy of $525 million, a gap of 525. And if that was to hold true and they were to actually put that in next year's budget, given that we're about six to seven percent, um, you know, we could be, we could, I mean, we may be a little higher, but I, I projected that we were about $45 million of potential subsidy impact from that increase, depending on where it falls out between bus and rail and other uh, components. So a few things from that, you know, ridership does look to be doing better than what they have in their budgets. So it's hopeful that that will bring in some more revenue. Um, also, you know, there could be, Typically, Metro goes through budget, different budget cuts or fine savings internally within departments. And then there could also be some service adjustments at Metro. And then there could also be a potential that federal funding, um, you know, there could be an increase in federal funding that Metro receives or uh, avail availability of them to use federal funding typically used for capital to be used for operating. So, you know, that's a potential thing that, you know, nothing yet. But if that becomes available, that could be another place that they could have, they could help solve this gap. So as of now, we're really just watching this. And you know, while I said this year you know, was a good story, it's that we're really a little worried about the next few years, 25. And the gap, if, if, if it's not from an ongoing source solved, it will trickle down into the future fiscal years. So that's what we're really watching carefully at, at this time. So with that, I'll stop with Metro and open up to any questions. Thank you, Mr. Fries. Any questions? I just wanted we'll start to start with Mr. DeFerranti and then Ms. Crystal. Sure. So the, I want to understand that 45 million bullet. Uh, I mean, we all, in different levels of concern, it's coming, and we're concerned about it. But um, that's 45 million in addition beyond the first slide that you suggested. That's that would be the annual increase, right? So in addition, because yeah. seven or eight, you know, the, the estimate of a cent in increase. That's a lot of cents. I'll just you know, but. I just was, I know it's come in the right direction and I'm actually hopeful that it'll come more in the right direction once the service issues are sort of more fully addressed, but I uh, just wanted to see if I actually understood that first bullet. No, Ms. Crystal. Well, I just wanted to clarify too, though, to know that um, a double-edged sword though it is, the 3% cap does mean we're not going to get a bill for $45 million more. Uh, there are going to be pretty major governance questions to be had with WMATA and our peer jurisdictions uh, in which Arlington will participate. So um, we obviously have a huge challenge here. I 
I'm somewhat optimistic uh, because we've done it before on the capital side. Uh, it was very, very, very difficult to catalyze attention from um, all three jurisdictions, and, and yet it was done. Uh, so not to be glib about it, but, I, but it is possible. I, I just wanted to clarify, we, we will not simply be handed a bill for an additional $45 million. I think we're gonna have a lot of big governance questions between now and then. Yeah, I mean, for sure, you're talking about a uh, 50% increase in the overall bill, which is not just us, it's everybody throughout the system. So clearly this is, that's a number that will not be realized. Cap reasons, just capacity reasons. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it would be great if you could be in more touch with us regularly. Let's not make this just an annual thing to really <laughs> get a sense of where things are going with thinking about this because it's, it's a huge, huge financial hurdle that's, that's coming, as you say, very quickly. It'd yeah. be a very unpleasant surprise to hold that until next year. So yeah. I think we'll, we'll be watching that. Right. Well, I think we hear about it at NVTC. Um, sure. And my memory is when we go, the, WMATA is the only transportation system that has this kind of funding mechanism. Is that correct? I mean, most places are fund, have different ways of funding their transit. A lot of other uh, entities have found other sources or more permanent sources, like, you know, New York has, has more, you know, different revenues that aren't just, they do have some local subsidy that still exists, but a lot of it comes from other, you know, tolls and other places. So they have, they have more, um, you know, more sources to, to pull from, whereas we, we are more reliant just on the local jurisdictional subsidy. Um, I'm not sure about San Francisco, uh, and Bars, some of the others, but yeah, we are, um, you know, that is, one of the difficulties in terms of solving these gaps sometimes is that if it's all on the jurisdictions, we have competing, you know, issues and, you know, the impact to us of $50 million on the county, you know, what is that, maybe six, seven cents or more on the tax rate, it is a substantial, you know, impact to the residents of the county. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I don't know if I'm optimistic. We're going to have to figure it out. We're about to go over a cliff, but, and we may get over that cliff or really, I mean, it's just kind of like we're playing a game of chicken in the region with Guamata, I think. And so it's fascinating to see and um, appreciate updates. I think, as I say, NVTC will be uh, doing it. It's, I'm, I'm I feel like we're watching a train better, wreck, right. literally. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see, have to figure it out. We'll all have to work together and that's a little yeah. dicey. Yeah, thank you. The, the regions worked together in the past, so I think, I think we we'll, yes. we'll get there eventually, but yes. it'll be, it will be probably a difficult year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. But, there's nothing like um, having to do it to survive. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> so. That's true indeed. All right. Thank you, Mr. Fries. Thank you. Mr. Manager, anything else to uh, conclude our work session mm -hmm. today? Nope. That concludes our presentations this evening. Well, thanks to you and the entire staff team. That was a um, very efficiently uh, conducted work session that covered nearly 100 slides. So thanks to everyone. <laughs> Um, that was terrific, and colleagues, we are back on uh, Thursday afternoon if there are any wrap-up questions, so be sure to get those together so that we can uh, request any information and get any more work uh, from staff to help with our consideration of this year's budget. That work session will be at 3 o'clock p.m. on Thursday. Till then, happy sixth night of Passover. We are adjourned.